Forrest Collins, how the hell are you? I am very good. How are you? I'm good. It's noontime here in New York, which means it's cocktail time over there. Do you yes, have something something delightful to hand? Um, I don't have anything to hand. I had quite a few cocktails yesterday, so I have some water to hand tonight. But as soon as we finish wrapping this up, I will move into cocktail hour. I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking, but uh, I think I got a sign from God or the other guy. Uh, I did a podcast the other day with Derek Brown. Do you know who Derek mm-hmm. is? I, yep. Derek's the best. And I, you know, we, we chatted for like three hours. I don't think I've ever hung out that long with him. He's fantastic. And he's been on, as they say here, a wellness journey. You know, he's kind of given up drinking. He's written books and stuff like that. And I asked him a question, like, how should people... Uh, prepare for day one of going on the wagon, say January the 1st. I always do dry January. And his his advice was genius. He said, start planning at two days out. Like, and plan the day. Like, fill it up with things. uh, You know, uh, go for a hike, a walk, visit a museum, so that you're not tempted to kill time by going into a bar. He had some great advice. And it kind of spurred me to do something in advance. There's amazing non-alcoholic Negronis made by a place in Brooklyn called St. Agrestus. Okay. And they do a mezcal non-alcoholic Negroni as well. So I laid in about 12 bottles of each and I put them in our our second fridge because we have two fridges in our kitchen. And I came, I woke up this morning and some of them had exploded, right? They had frozen so solid that they exploded. The cap cut off. And I'm like, is this a message? Should I not give up drinking for January? I would really take that as a message. I mean, I I can't imagine a stronger message. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What's that Steve Martin movie where he's like looking at a picture of his dead wife asking permission to date somebody and he's like, send me a sign. Like the picture starts spinning. There's wind in the room. You hear this voice. No! And then it all comes down again and he's like, anything, just a simple sign. Just a little sign, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Ah, very good, very good. Well, I have here, in your honour, and also because I had so many drinks last night, I actually need one now to get level, uh, the only bottle of Lutes aperitif Ah, in the United States. Young Josh Fontaine was here a few weeks ago and he gave it to me very kindly. Um, It's the last of it because, quite frankly, Mrs. Duff has guzzled the whole fucking lot. Well... So, Good for her. Yeah, yeah. Josh, um, you've got one customer here, and she's married to me. So pluses and minuses, really. But no, it's absolutely delicious. I assume you tried it? I have, yeah. It's very good. And now I feel bad. Now I feel like I should have made myself a drink before I sat down, because that just would have been cooler to be sitting here having a drink while we're chatting. But and while we're time. chatting about your new book, I mean, we're not just chatting about it, but we are going to talk about Drink Like a Local Paris. Yeah. A field guide to Paris's best bars. And I love the sort of introduction that you write in it as well. But we always have to do a thing because all my listeners are drunk, both of them. Um, how did you make it so far in your career that you're finally on the Philip Duff show? Can we have Forrest Collins 101 elevator pitch? Oh, God. Um, Forrest Collins has been the voice of cocktails in Paris, a, a cocktail advocate in Paris for my 17 years. I love the way uh, you talk about yourself in the third person. Please never stop doing that. <laughs> Philip likes that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Forrest will continue to do that. Uh, Forrest uh, wrote pretty, well, you know, uh, it was pretty much 52 Martinis was 
I would say the first blog about cocktails in Paris, certainly in English. And so pretty much, you know, an early adopter of cocktails in Paris and an early advocate for them. And from that, basically, it just branched out into anything that had to do with cocktails in Paris. There was probably some something that Forrest had to do with it. So, you know, I've got the iOS app now for Paris, a guide to Paris cocktail bars. I've had a podcast now for well, probably a decade, Paris Cocktail Talk, and um, and the blog's still there. But, you know, like a lot of us who got our starts in blogging, it's not updated as frequently as when I had more time and energy to burn. But, uh, but you know, that really kind of, that that's that takes me up to to this point. So, oh, and uh, I'm the chair for fifty two um world fifty two for world's fifty best bars for France. So, so you know, that's kind of my cocktail credentials, and uh, I guess what helped me get approached by the publishing helps to write this book. But you've got a very cool day job. I do. Yeah, I think it's very cool. Can you talk about it? Yeah, I'd keep, that's my secret. It's my dirty little secret. I don't <laughs> tell people my day job as opposed to my night job. It's um, all yeah. coming out on the Philip Duff show. It is. You're you're making me spilling spill, the tea. spill my secrets. We're spilling the tea here live. It is. Um, I work at UNESCO um, in, in, in Paris, the headquarters for UNESCO. And I work for the Oceanographic Commission. So I work in administration and the team that I'm working with... Uh, we focus on, um, uh, well, we coordinate a global ocean observing system. So, so yeah, so it's very cool. I'm actually, I consider myself very lucky because it's nice to have something during the day that I feel is really fulfilling and it's, you know, it's, it's doing something good for the world. And then I get to have lots of fun with my night job. So, um, but also that provides a really nice, my, my night job, especially the writing component provides a really nice creative outlet. So, so it's, it's all about balance. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it would be the only way you could be any cooler would be if your day job was writing about cocktails and you moonlighted, <laughs> moonlighted. right? Like Flashdance. She was a welder by day and a dancer <laughs> by night. But what if she was a dancer to support her passion for welding? Welding. You I know, love she was like, I'm going to make uh, it. I'm, I'm going to get in the union. You know? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, uh, Maybe in another another career, another life. But uh, I, actually, no. there, there is one thing I don't know if I ever discussed this with you the last time we met. But I do know that, uh, uh, well, I think that a lot of your job involves kind of you know predicting and monitoring stuff, right? Like earthquakes, tsunamis, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm not on the. Uh, that's not my team anymore. But in the past, it it has been working on the tsunami team, where uh, a lot of it is about uh, training different, um, providing training opportunities and warning systems for 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 nations around the world yeah and and now it's it's more about coordinating a system of networks that take ocean science data and deliver it to end users um that help things like mitigate climate change or um <clears throat> uh weather predictions that kind of thing you're clearly you're clearly an assassin because nobody could have a job that dull, <laughs> right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Watch your back, people. Yeah. No. What I wanted to ask you was, I read an article not long ago, and it was about how weather prediction has got so much better. Yeah. And is that something that you saw? Because you know, as technology progresses and and we get better at it, um, uh, is prediction of massive events getting better? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the science is always evolving. Um, and 
In terms of weather prediction, it's not really my area because that's actually handled. We work really closely with uh, actually our our um, pro- program works really closely with WMO with the World Meteorological Organization, and so those guys are more about weather prediction. But uh, but yes, I, I think globally, you know, I've been working there for. I don't know, as long as I've been doing my night job, so a really long time, and you just see a continuous um, evolution and, and of um, scientific process for this. It's it's very hard to see incremental evolution, isn't it? Like if something increases, there's Mrs. Dove. I um, just saw her walk by. She's off to lunch at Baltazar. So if any of the Baltazar staff are listening, um, call in the people who are on their days off. You will need all the help you can get. She's having lunch <laughs> with our friend Jim. Um, like you never open the paper and it's like, you know, infant mortality down 3%. Right. But over 10 years, that's like, fuck, that's a lot of non-dead babies. Exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah. uh, it's it's always the, the thing that bleeds that leads. But enough of our media criticism. Let's talk of another medium. Oh, there is something I want to show you. Actually, oh, let's see. let me just pause recording. And we're back. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. Yeah. Now I'm super just, curious. This is a link to how we met. And I just received it today in the post. It's this beautiful framed picture of me and the boys. That's Maison Philvert. We all got together, I'm sure you saw it, to recreate Gaz Regan's Fingerster Negroni, which originated at the G-Vine Gin Connoisseur program. So there's me, Hidesuga Ueno, Peter Dorelli, Salvatore Calabresi, Jean-Sebastien Lubiquet, and young Dale DeGroff. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, we auctioned this off for charity. And there's a few other bits and pieces you get as well. And we're trying to revive the dear departed Gary Regan's um, Think- Just One Shift charity. Where Ah, oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and it all goes to Wine to Water, which is an amazing charity started by an ex I- love that um i love that charity and i think gaz was pretty um had pretty close ties to them as well didn't he very much so it was started yeah. by a guy called doc Handley, and uh the uh ceo or president of the charity actually came to cognac with us and they do all kinds of cool ass shit like they participate yeah. in coachella and south by southwest but yeah given that uh it was uh you know our early hangs were down there in cognac thanks to uh g-vine I thought you'd like to see that. And speaking yeah, of much. France. Yes. Speaking of France, in between the city periodically uh, catching on fire and every third teacher being beheaded, you've written a very important book about cocktails. Yes, indeed. It's it's what France needs to heal, frankly. <laughs> but it's it's Drink Like a Local in Paris. Um, but, the you know, and it's fantastic. And I want to go into all the little neighbourhoods. But you write about how important it is and how rewarding it can be to be a regular in a bar. And, uh, well, I've got lots of stories to tell about it, but one of them was a few years ago. I was in Atlanta doing some work. And on the last night, I took the sales rep out for dinner to say thank you and also congratulations, you're getting rid of me. And we had a great time. And he mentioned that his wife had a soy allergy. And I was like, oh, yeah, that must suck. No sushi. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's so much worse than that. Uh, soy is on or in everything. I I didn't know that. If you'd asked me, I would have said I have no idea. But somehow it doesn't surprise me. I I, I don't know. So it, is it, it? If you see vegetable oil, 
It's soy. It's in soy sauce. Soy sauce is put as a flavoring in many other sauces and prepared foods. Vegetables and fruit are sprayed with soy to preserve them on their trips. And if this poor woman gets a little bit of it, it really fucks her up. And I was, he explained all this to me. And then I was like, like you, I was like, fuck, man, that sucks. He says, but because Americans are endlessly optimistic. Uh, he says, we have become serious regulars at four restaurants in Atlanta. We can only really, we were fortunately, we were eating in one of them. <laughs> Shout out to uh, Kimball House, Miles McQuarrie. <laughs> we know them and trust them. And all the kitchen staff will dive down every last alleyway to ensure there's no soy. So we are true regulars. And like, what a joy it is. Like, do you want to recount becoming a regular at one or two places in Paris like you did in the sort of introductory uh, chapter? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as you read in the introduction, I do really think um, drinking like a local, it's more than just hitting these top bars that we all talk about. It it is about discovering something really special in the place. And it's it's the people and it's the time and it's, it's your state of mind. And so when I very first moved to Paris, I dropped into a little pub that was around the corner from my apartment. It was the night before St. Patrick's Day. I got to chatting with the bar owner who was tending bar and, you know, saying I just moved here, chat, chat, chat. And he said that I should come back the next day and meet his bar manager. He said uh, that he's sure we would become great friends. And so came in, met her. She's actually at, at my house this weekend. Um, and lovely Irish lady. She's, you know, my closest friend here. And, um, and then just, you know, I would stop in and, and just repeatedly go back. And then suddenly this is, this is where all your friends are. It just becomes, it becomes part of your daily routine. It's this, especially in many places, it's this way, but, you know, especially in Paris where apartments are small, space is tight. You're, you're, it's, it's very customary to go out and, and have a drink at the end of the day, to have your apparel, to have, you know, a little beer or a glass of wine. And so this really became like a a different room of my home. And you could go in at any time and you would always know people, you know, the owners. Sometimes you'd work an occasional shift there because somebody was sick. And, you know, um, so it it really, it it became such a special place to me. And it made me really feel like a local. It made me feel I've got my, my, you know, my special place here where I can go at any point in time and find somebody I know and not feel lonely also in a big city that I just moved to. So, um, so that, that was also a nice element to it as well. So that was great. And, um, as I say in the book, that's, that is the very first bar it's called Lush Bar and it's still around. It's in the 17th. I don't go so often anymore because I live in a different neighborhood and I'm going to, you know, this is many years later, different, different period of time in my life, but I'm still friends with so many of the people, my, my very close friendship circle here, almost all of them are from those days in that bar. So, so there's really drinking like a real local. It, there's so many advantages to it from, you know, okay, staving off that loneliness, meeting people that are, that become your friends for, for, for your life. And, um, you know, and also just having fun. And also it just feels cool when you go into a place and people know you, right? Like it's just, it's so nice and comfortable and, and just makes you feel good when somebody knows your name, when you walk in the bar. So, so yeah, that was my first kind of local place. I've also spent quite a lot of time in the past, uh, being a local at Red House because, you know, that also has like a real fun, laid back vibe again you know 10 years ago i was there quite quite a lot i've got less energy to to be in in the bars and having fun all the time these days so 
um, maybe less of a, a regular there now, but uh, that's another place. Same, same kind of thing. You just you go in and you just feel really, you feel comfortable. You feel welcome. <clears throat> you meet people. People become friends just in a matter of a few minutes that you're sitting next to them at the bar. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess there's more to say about it than that. Obviously, I wrote a whole book about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of places I've I've drank like a local and and some of the reasons behind it. Yeah, I mean, there is a a feeling you should always go to the new, the shiny place, you know, or you can go to a place quite a lot and not really be a be a regular. Like my wife probably goes to Balthazar a couple of times a month, but she's not a regular. I mean, the bartender, one bartender might recognize her, that kind of thing. And before the pandemic, um, let let me bring it back to me for a moment, if I may. Uh, I didn't really have a local in New York. I lived here for over a decade and I did not have a local because I was constantly going out to, you know, my friends' bars, bars stocking my Geneva, bars stocking my things, new bars. And that was great because there was always people that I knew there. But the people that I knew were the staff, not the customers. And the pandemic happened and it was fucking weird. It was exceptionally weird in New York. But I became a local at a place two blocks from my apartment, the Painted Lady, which sadly is no longer. It did survive COVID, but uh, after a couple of years, the owners went on to new adventures. But I was there most days, you know, and, and I I had not been a local uh, since my since probably my early days living in London. So more than two decades. I was going to say, it's probably very similar for you. Uh, I was thinking that exact same things as it is for me. There's a Because I, I'm always reviewing bars and writing about bars, I do want to spend my time checking out the new bars, you know, and, and I don't always have the luxury of returning to some of my favorite places over and over. Now, there's certain places that I've returned to many, many times. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's 75 bars in this book. I'm definitely not a local at all of them. And, uh, you know, it's just it's not possible to be. Um, but. I, I fortunately still know a lot of people in the bar world. So even if I'm not a, a local, same thing, I can go into a bar and generally say hi and, and have some kind of connection. So that, that, that's nice. But now you're making me sort of pine for days where I could just regularly go to the same place all the time, but uh, I guess trade-offs. Well, if you're doing this, if you're in the drinks business or a bartender or something like that, I do think that you need a safe haven. Right. And I'll give you an example. Uh, my first wife, the amazing and patient Barbara, Barbara, if you're listening, happy holidays, um, was not in the business, but she, you know, came to a lot of my seminars. We traveled around the world and, you know, so she picked up a lot and it began to be that we would be out at some place that was not a great cocktail bar because, you know, Holland. Right. And she'd like nudge me in the arm and say, Phil, Phil. Phil, look. And I'd be like, what? She said, he's handling the ice with his hands. And I'm like, it's all right. You know, it's it's cool. Right. She had learned enough to pick up on things like that, but not so much that she could relax. Mm. And uh, the person who now has her job, the beautiful Elaine Duff, uh, had that too. We had a place uh, near our apartment called Parlor Steakhouse right? On 3rd Avenue, for anybody familiar with the Upper East Side. 
And it was, if I was ever going to go back into the bear of hospitality, I would open a place very much like this because it was beautiful, but not intimidating. You could go there for a martini and a $10 plate of pasta for your kid, or you could spend 80 bucks on a steak. It was all there. The bar was good, but not that good. There was no road of apps or sous vide. And we, you know, we kind of, that was our date place. It it was our easy meal place with uh, our kid. Uh, I could take clients there. It was an everything place. And I never told anybody what I did because I wanted to be able to go in there. And if I wanted a vodka martini, I didn't need the staff texting each other saying, Philip Duff's ordering a vodka martini. And once, I was there with uh, Elaine and I went to the loo and I came back and she was lecturing the staff on, I don't know, how to stir a cocktail. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just, could you, could you give us a minute here? And I'm like, we need this to be a safe haven. Every now and then I want to drink amaretto and, you know, like this, you need a place. And I feel that that's a function of a local too. If you're in a, if you are somehow connected to the drinks business, you need to go in a place where everybody knows your name and nobody knows your business. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what you just described sounds kind of like a unicorn of a place, right? You know, it seems like you know, <clears throat> the drinks are good enough. The, the it, It's got everything that you need with, without any kind of attitude or airs and graces or, I don't know, presumption about whatever you're doing. So, uh, yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, Something with this book, I write a lot about cocktails. I talk a lot about, I get the same, you know, looking at, are they touching the ice? Are they doing this? How are they stirring it? But a lot of the places in the book, in this field guide, they, they're they not all because they make perfect cocktails. A lot of them are these places that you go and and it delivers what, you know, a, a local can deliver. It, it's got, the, it's got the, um, the great staff. Drinks are good enough. And uh, I mean, some of them, they're exceptional. I'm not saying that the drinks are just okay in all these, but um, drinks are good enough. It's a great location. I really like places that kind of have a story and have some soul to them. So yeah, I do think, uh, I think finding a great local is very different for me than finding the world's best cocktail bar. Uh, I think that um, there's overlap, but they're not, you you don't always get the same and, and you you don't always get both in one place. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, actually, because this is the first December in New York that for me feels like December 2019 and before, by which I mean I'm normally back home safe and sound, somewhat battered and bruised at in New York, and I don't go anywhere else again, somewhere around the middle of November, right? It used to be that the end of the season was Bar Convent Berlin in Berlin, uh, but now the show's, you know, up into it's, December. Yeah. You know, and I love going to them, and I will, and I'll travel, but generally, I'm here. And what happens between the 15th of November and 1st of January is that every motherfucker I have ever met in my life visits New York and wants to and go out for a drink for with a drink. me. Yeah, and I, I love it, and they look after me when I'm on the road, so I put on my, my big girl panties, and I head out there. And what's happened here, and I want to ask you about how it's happened in Paris, too, is probably what's happened in Paris. A bunch of places closed. Thankfully, a lot of places survived. New places have sprung up, right? And in the post-COVID boom, if you will, many of these new places are A, amazing, and B, fucking killing it. They are 
round all the time. All, their, their problem is not publicity. Their problem is buying enough wheelbarrows to take the money to the bank. And when all these people visit me this year, I've made it a policy. Uh, I only take them to bars they haven't heard of. Excellent bars, but bars they haven't heard of. And they are consistently floored. In fact, that was last night, the uh, the bar tour that I was on with my friend Devender Sigal from uh, the Aubrey in Hong Kong. He had an exceptional evening, not just because of my sparkling company, because I feel drinking like a local involves a bit of that. Like if I go to Oslo, I'll want to go to Himcock. And, and I'm sh- Himcock has to be great, right? I, I still haven't been. Sorry, Eric. But I will. I, this is very funny because right next to me, I just have happened to have on the chair right next to me. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, excellent. One of their sweatshirts. I love those guys. Anyway, they that's are... just a little shout out for them. They're awesome. Shout out to him, Cock Oswald. Yeah, but I kind of, it's no secret about him, Cock. Yeah. Right? Everybody knows it. So while it is, and you can say the same about Mile Play Store 74 in Amsterdam or PDT in New York, any, any bar that's famous is not by necessity. You, you know, the world owns it a little bit. It's a, you know, as opposed to, I, I could take you to places in New York that would blow your mind and you could take me to places in Paris. Is that what drinking like a local means? I mean, I think really- To it a means, degree? To a degree, but I think it means, I mean, obviously I think it means different things to different people. And there's bars in this book, like Little Red Doors in this book, because I, I just don't think you can write this book without talking about bars like that. Um but it's bars like that also interspersed with tiny wine bars that, you know, that the average visitor doesn't know about, like uh, Le Ruby, which is just a tiny bar that people are just old. The t- floor tiles are, you know, it's it's kind of dingy. It's dusty. It's doesn't seem like much, but it's got so much personality. And uh, yeah, so for me, it's a combination of both. Uh, and I think that uh, if the place is pulling in locals and has a really nice story that ties it and a Parisian soul, if you will. It also means you're drinking like a local. So a place like Little Red Door, you're right. Nobody, m- most cocktail aficionados are not going to come to Paris and be surprised. Oh, I've just discovered a little uh, a little Red Door, but um, uh, but there is this really lovely local element to them, especially because they. They um, concentrate so much on uh, producers, French producers, and local ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so there's that kind of a local element to it as well, and it really does. It really does pull in a Parisian crowd. So, uh, I feel like this book is directed at people. Not, it's not necessarily for only for people who are into cocktails. It's for people who come to Paris and they want to they want to enter into a place where they really do feel like this isn't, you know. This isn't some big tourist trap. So, for example, I didn't write about the bar that's on the top of the Tour Montparnasse because, one, nobody needs to be told there's a bar up there. I'm sure anybody looking for any what to do in Paris will come across it. And, uh, two, it's full of tourists, actually. It's not really – there's there's aside from the view of the Eiffel Tower, to me, there's not a really local element to it. So, for me, I, th- I think it really is our, our locals, and by that I don't just mean the expat locals like me, but Parisians, are they drawn to the place? And uh, does it have a Parisian kind of life? So another bar that's in the book is Chez Jeanette, and it's a pretty standard cafe. Um, 
it's got an interesting story because the original owner, when they sold it to the current owner, insisted that none of the um, decor was changed. So now it's very like old and retro. And but but a younger generation loves it. It's kind of a rite of passage for young Parisians. You know, they go and they they have their little half a beer on the cafe and and they chit chat and they flirt with each other. And you know, it's just kind of part of becoming an adult, right? It's it's their their space that they're going in. I'm not hanging out at Chez Jeanette anymore, but it is a real place that real locals drink and, and you know, has a real tie to Paris, I think. So, um, yeah, so I think I, I totally sidetracked myself. I'm not even sure what question I'm answering anymore. I'm not but... sure I asked one. No, but... Okay, well, <laughs> I mean, I'll let you ask one then. We're teasing out what being a local is. Like, it's it's a degree of regularity, right? It's a degree of you, the local liking the place so maybe not a tourist trap and it's a degree of well this is a hidden gem yeah like it's at the stage now where there are several bars in new york that are excellent cocktail bars incredibly busy like incredibly busy but not famous and their bar managers or bar directors or owners have asked me to help make them famous because they know that i know a few people here and there and I'm like, well, look, there's a there's a treadmill you can go on, you know, the guest bartenders, seminars at cocktail, fe- you know, we all know the hedonic treadmill. But I'm like, at the end of that, the goal is that your bar is busy every night and you're already busy every night. So why do you want to do this? And they're like, well, we want it for the staff. Which is quite to interesting. To attract better staff or to give them kind of this. To give them a bonus. So the accolades, they get, yeah. Yeah, they get flown around and all this kind of thing. And, you know... I get that, but there's also a bit of a, well, part of the legendary curse of 50 best or awards or anything is that you get busy all the time. And I like to give the example of PDT here in New York. It is consistently rammed and the staff, you know, 10 years. Oh my God. No, it's not 10 years. It's fucking, they opened it to, they opened a year before door 74. So they opened in 2007. Yes, yeah, so, so like 15, 17 years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, almost. Uh, they are consistently lovely. And it is, I don't know if they have any real regulars, but it is consistently rammed with tourists who all go in and they all want a photo under the bear and they all want to have the bacon fat-washed, old-fashioned. How, how can a bar cope with becoming famous and not be a tourist trap? Like, if... You can't turn people away. You can't ask for their residency permit. <laughs> I mean, you could, but. <laughs> well, that's kind of an interesting concept for a bar. Papers, Real please. Only. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what they almost did with coffee shops in uh, Holland. Do you know that? No, I didn't. Oh, my God. It was. So <sighs> there's a view of Holland as being incredibly liberal. And it is in the big cities, Rotterdam, Utrecht, and Amsterdam. There's a very conservative edge to it as well. However, this story is hilarious for unconnected reasons. Um, In the south of Holland, like Maastricht, you were at the nexus of Luxembourg, Belgium, Germany, and France, all places where uh, marijuana is not legal. But it's legal in Holland, and it's legal everywhere in Holland. So all these people would drive to buy weed at coffee shops, right? And the Dutch people were fine with that. Business is business. But they were clogging up the town with parking. Like, Dutch people are like, have all the marijuana you like, but don't fuck with our parking. So they came up with a proposal that you would have to show, 
local residency to buy marijuana there, hmm. right? Now, it didn't pass, but it began to be discussed in Amsterdam as well as a way of mitigating uh, what they describe as, uh, you know, undesirable tourism, which is to say drunken young men from England. And, you know, I, I was getting panicky phone calls from Americans here saying, Phil, Phil, what about this in Amsterdam? Do you still have an apartment there? Uh, it didn't pass in the end, but it's. I think it's hilarious that it wasn't really about marijuana. It was about, about parking, the parking. <laughs> about but fucking see, up the some parking. enterprising person should have built a coffee shop just right on the border around nothing else where nobody needed to park. Sort of, you know, sometimes there, there's um, shops. A drive-through. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That would be very funny. Um, but I do like back to what you were just saying. Um, I find it interesting to watch these bars that are, you know, becoming famous and these things where what was originally their draw, it, it's, it's not a secret anymore. You know, PDT, it's not a secret. There's, you know, the lava matic here in Paris or the, um, APC, which is they're both hidden bars as well, where one you find the um the washing machine and the other one you pull the right item off the um off the shelves. Um it, it, the secrecy is lost because there's always a big long line of people waiting to get inside. So um I it, it, and it also becomes that kind of tr making these lists and and being famous it becomes a full-time job, right? So, and many of these bars that, that many uh, are able to pull off both excellent cocktails and still run the machinery, but it's more work. It's more resources, more financial resources, more human resources, really to make those things happen. Because um, sure, uh, you might discover a good bar here or there, but I think there's really a lot of, a lot of intent behind the ones that really um, shine with with visibility on a global scale. Not all of them, but a lot. I, I don't know what you think, but and so I don't know. I, I I I completely agree with you that I think when you were saying the goal is to be busy, what more do you need? Now I can't really speak to yeah, being able to provide more benefits to the staff with these guest shifts and things. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's a big machine to feed to to stay to stay famous. Yeah, yeah, and it's strange that you know when bars have made it and they stop playing the game, but they continue improving, that they fall down the rankings or disappear from them. Perhaps the best example is the Dead Rabbit. I'm here to tell you the Dead Rabbit's better now than it has ever been, and I've been oh, there. Good to know. Every step of the way, from looking at the empty space with uh, Sean Muldoon when mm -hmm. it was still just an option, to the pre-opening, the actual everything, um, they are firing on all four cylinders. And I don't believe they're even on the list, or maybe they're like number ninety or something. Yeah, I mean, it is it is to me really crazy to see how um, how these really large shifts. This cannot be just due to the the quality of what's in the glass you just you know you just can't rise or fall i mean i guess it also has to do with the other list the other um competition that you're that you're playing against but um yeah I, I, it's also to me very interesting to see these lists and see for example the bars and the restaurants i, I feel like there should also be more crossover there so if you if you're a bar if you're a restaurant on the you know on one of the top of the list shouldn't your bar be like or at least a few of the top restaurants have 
top bars on the list. I don't know. I mean, it's just a, a, a thought of mine, but that's really um, interesting. I think you're right. Yeah. Wow. I never really thought about that before, but definitely. I mean, and, and let's be clear, we're not just talking about 50 best. We're talking about all the lists, all the awards, all of that. They tend yeah. to all mush together. But, you know, if you think about that, if a bar works its ass off, you know, gets on the list to whatever position they want to be, and then stops, they fall down the ranking. So maybe these lists and awards are largely based on how badly you want them. And when you stop wanting them, they stop rewarding you. When you stop playing the game, the hedonic treadmill of endless pop-ups, guest bartending, seminars, putting on your own mini festival and flying everybody in. When you stop playing that game, you tumble down the rankings. Uh yeah. I I, I mean I think that you I think you have to you have to play to to um be visible, to have visibility. Yeah, there's an interest. Have you heard about this new thing, the uh, the pinnacle guy? Yes, uh, I have. We've you and I have talked about this a little bit now. Um, uh, I, I know we did. I was just bringing it up. It's kind of it's what us podcasters do, right? <laughs> yes. So it's kind of bring the listener in. Both of you, both exactly. of you listening. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah little yeah. trick from us old pros. I think um, I think it's an interesting concept, um, but well, I'll let you explain to the listeners if you want. Um, uh, well, I, I think I know as much as you, and we, we all know yeah. the people doing it. It's a great idea. Um, it is a ranking system whereby you can get one, two, or three pins. There's no limit to the number of you know establishments that can be pinned in a city or a country. And it's anonymous assessment. But the one of the interesting things about it is that you have to apply. They're not saying these are the best bars in this city, essentially, uh, they are giving pins to bars, but you have to write quite an extensive, you know, opening of your kimono. And I don't think that's ever happened before. I don't think there's ever been awards you apply for in that sense, in hospitality, in terms of, in hospitality, you know, yeah. yeah, in terms of awards and lists and, and this and that. That's what I felt was important. Pluses and minuses, you get to communicate things that might not be apparent from a visit. And then uh, a minus, I think, would be, well, what is relevant to telling a consumer uh, this is a good bar or if you go to this bar, uh, you'll be drinking like a local? Which, you know, this is this is what your book says. You're saying, yeah. hey, here's my guide to drinking like a local. Here's what drinking like a local is. But in terms of how formalizing it and saying, hey, this is our goal, our vision, uh, what's important? Question mark. Uh, <laughs> what's important in terms of, are you talking about for Pinnacle or are you just talking about for? I, I guess what's important for the guest, right? Because oh, this is yeah. all about the consumer. It's all about the guest. Um, is it important that, you know, somebody has read the mission statement of the bar and their commitment to this and that and the other thing? Or is it important that the toilets are clean and the staff are friendly yeah, and the cocktails? Of course it's it's know? the yeah, it's it's all of that. I mean, of course it's it's the the user experience, right? It's important that the customer comes in, feels welcome. And, you know, especially in cocktail bars, especially in, you know, the kind of the revival with the craft cocktail bars, it's really easy for customers to walk in and feel intimidated. And so um, you know, it's it's definitely it's the it's the comfort level and then the quality of the drinks and and you know I used to be very 
rigid. It just matters what's in the glass as I'm, you know, mm. as I'm reviewing these things, but it's, it's a whole experience. If I just want what's in the glass, you know, I, I can make it at home. So, so it, it's the service, it's the ambiance, it's the decor, it's the, it's the concept. If they have a concept, um, I, I don't think all bars need a concept, but, uh, they're so, so much more prevalent now. Um, yeah. Uh, so I guess maybe that would fall into some kind of a mission statement, but I really just want to feel good when I go into a bar. I want well-made drinks and to be made to feel good myself. That's, that's, that's my goal. What do you think? Well, definitely everything matters. Everything matters. Like right down to, I did a, a psychology class in college. And by that stage, I'd been working as a bartender for five or six years since the age of 15. And um, the psychology teacher used a hospitality metaphor, which I thought was great. They're like, okay, you're going out with your partner or whatever loved one to a restaurant and you want to have a lovely family meal and it's uncomplicated. You know, it's not intimidating. Let's say you're going to, you know, neighborhood Italian restaurant. When you open the door, does it open out or in? Does it push you away? Or are you welcomed in? And he literally brought it back to the experience of being in the womb and leaving the womb and, and, and all that kind of thing. It's it's a lot of stuff that's not particularly deep, but isn't that well thought out. A lot of owners and managers don't sit in every seat in their restaurant or bar, and they don't experience it. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think that, but, you know, a lot of bar owners don't have a global vision, right? I mean, and they have different intents, I think, when they open a bar. You know, it's cool to own a bar or um, the, the they're thinking about it. Actually, they're not putting the customer as the central character. They're the central character. And I think that's the customer's the hero, right? Let, let, let's make them. This is about them, not about the the bar owner or the bar manager. And I think that's that's not um, exclusive to just bars. I mean, I think that's a, that's an issue kind of all around and, and restaurants as well. And, um, you know, yeah, but it's it's all about the customer. So, I mean, have you I, ever been, you must have been to Rum Trader in Berlin, right? Uh, yes, but it's been a really wa- a while. Well, funnily enough, the uh, I I knew Mister Scholl, a fantastic gentleman. It's now, by the way, been handed down to one of his regulars, uh, Mister Zamani and his lady. Shout out to Mister Zamani at Rum Trader. But uh, one time, Jim Meehan called me. Uh, we were, I think, both going to Berlin. I'm going to say it was probably for Bar Convent Berlin and or, or something else. I can't remember what it was. But he's like, Phil, I've never been to Berlin before. Will you come with me? And I'm like, absolutely. And we met up and I'm like, I've got to take Jim to Rum Trader. So people who don't know, this is perhaps the world's first neo speakeasy. It yeah. opened in the early 80s by Mr. Schroeder, who was, I don't know if you know this, he was the last bartender trained at the pre-war Adlon Hotel. Wow. Yeah. The Adlon to Berlin, uh, uh, specifically in terms of cocktails, was the Savoy to London. And it was, you know, destroyed and rebuilt after World War II. So Mr. Schroeder went on to work at some of the best bars in the world, the Horseshoe Bar at the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin. Um, he worked at the original Trader Vicks. Oh, right? very cool. And he came back and 
uh, like many Germans, who's an Anglophile, he married his love of tropical drinks and his love of uh, English people, and he opened a place called Rum Trader, right? All about gin and uh, thing. And he passed it on to one of his regulars. Mr. Scholl was a classical musical composer and a regular at the bar. Oh, yeah. And Mr. Schroeder said one day to Mr. Scholl, he says, my dear man, you must take over the bar or I will close it. So Mr. Shaw gave up a career in classical music composition. I've got, I have some of his CDs, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, and became a bar owner. And then one day, about four years ago, uh, Mr. Shaw said to one of his regulars, Sahad Zamani, who's a German-Iranian uh, movie director, he says, Mr. Zamani, you must take it over or I will close the bar. Now, Mr. Zamani's a bar owner. <laughs> it's brilliant. It sounds like some kind of like scary movie, right? Like, you know, yeah. you can't get out of it until you pass it on to somebody else and 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 oblige them to change their career. But it's actually a very cool story. The, mo- the monkey's paw, yeah. <laughs> They've got a young apprentice there who's this like 19-year-old kid. And I'm like, kid, either stay forever or get out now. <laughs> get out now. Save yourself. Save or, yourself. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I took Jim there. Now, this is a tiny, tiny little um, speakeasy in the uh, the bourgeois area of yeah. uh, Berlin. Um, you only know it's open when there's a flag flying outside. Apart from having an outdoor area during COVID, the door is closed. You knock on the door. There's no reservations or anything like that. And it's a tiny, tiny place. Like 15 people would pack it, really. Yeah. And I had been there a few times and I knew Mr. Shaw. And I went in there with Jim, who not only had never been to Berlin before, never been to Germany, didn't know a soul. And I came in. And I immediately got sucked away into all these other conversations and drinks and glasses of champagne. And it was, I suddenly realized it had been hours and I hadn't spoken to Jim. I felt awful. And it was a warm night. He was, he was outside. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. He said, no, 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 no. This is like the best place ever. Everybody took care of me because every regular considered themselves to be almost like an ambassador for the place and when somebody new came in they would look after them as they themselves would be looked after it's a it's a remarkable thing and that's the nice thing about you know places that have a little bit of a a threshold um once you're in you're in you know once you're in paradiso in barcelona or pdt in new york or uh door 74 in amsterdam you're, you're, you're kind of looking around at other people saying, yeah, man. It's, it's like when you see somebody else driving your model of car, you're like, yeah. You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. Oh, see, so this is interesting to me as well, because things have evolved so much and you've seen them evolving the past two decades in the cocktail world. And what was really, really exciting for me, you know, 17 years ago was being able to go any place and and have a connection. It was a smaller community back then, right? So, and it was like that. You know, I remember going to Le Lyon and going to um, I, I love that bar, but then also going to the, you know, the other bar across the way uh, atop the Cafe de Paris. And and like it's like, oh, this is so cool. And, you know, it was probably somebody that had given me an introduction to um to York, right? You know, it was probably maybe you or maybe somebody else. And so you do, you feel like you kind of passed this threshold. You've arrived. I'm I'm in this tiny, special, like, 
really fucking small community of people who were like just equally kind of cool and interesting geeks who love like to to like get into the minutia of these things, but also just fun and interesting and and, and friendly. It's much bigger now. I mean, I, I, is that a good thing? It, it is a good thing, right? Because it means now we can get a decent cocktail in so many more places. Um, and and it's probably not right to want to keep that to for that to maintain like the small exclusivity that it felt like in the beginning. Um, and it's natural, right? Things go through these, you know, there's there's the early adopters and then there's, you know, before things kind of hit more of a mainstream. But um, it's just been interesting, I guess, to watch that evolution. And I can't decide whether to feel excited about that or sad. I mean, I guess excited because in all honesty, probably nobody would have asked me to write this book if cocktails weren't mainstream these days. You know, the kind of... But I don't know. How do you, how, what do you think about, there's not a real question there, but what do you think about that? How, how have you felt about seeing that evolution and does it change your experience now um, when you're going into these places? I mean, you have to recognize that we're the old farts now. I'm yeah, only 28 absolutely. and I feel old, but uh, <laughs> I started bartending when I was two. Um, but there's constant new generations. I'm seeing it through my stepdaughter's eyes. She's 18 now. Yeah, And she's going out to cool experiences. Probably in about 10 years, she'll realize how cool me and her mom are. Right? She's not quite there yet. Yeah. 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 She'd be like, oh, yeah, you guys really upped your game. But there are experiences happening. There are uh, things. And it's all about, I, I like to call it funneling. I was having a discussion once with a friend of the business about bar locations. And I'm like, some locations dictate what you do. If somebody gives you some prime real estate, slap bang in, you know, the middle of Times Square or Piccadilly in London, you don't have as many options as to what you can put there because all of humanity will stream past your door. And you will have to, if they come in, you'll have to be great to them because there's no way to have successful hospitality without being nice to people. And I'm always reminded of my mate, um, Martin O'Sullivan in Australia, bar owner, great guy. And he opened a place. Now, this was exceptionally difficult to find in Sydney, right? Literally down an alley behind some trash cans called Grasshopper. And he told me from his previous bar, one of his regulars ran Google for the Australasian area. I said, hey, Marty, I know you're opening a place. Um, How can I help? Thinking he would say, oh, please, you know, push it up the search rankings. And Marty said, please make sure nobody can find it on Google Maps for three months. So all Marty then had to do was have a great opening party, invite cool people. And everyone who returned there for the following three or six months had either been at the party or knew somebody who had, thereby assuring nobody who was lukewarm about it came in. Because, I, I, you know, I don't think there's good bars and bad bars. It's just the wrong target market. There's a place near me, Rafe's, Reef's Bar. To give you some idea, when they built an outdoor area during COVID, it looked like the patio of a meth clinic. Everyone in this bar has made bad decisions for a long time in their life. But do they fucking love that bar? I bet they do. It's not well, the place and, for me. It's but, not. And who is it to, for either of us to dictate who who should enjoy uh, who should enjoy their bars? Right. I mean, there's a bar for everybody out there. They're not all for me, but everybody deserves a bar that they love. So 
That, so that's it's what good. I mean. It's it's it, it's not that a bar is inherently good or bad. Like right. I know people who hate craft cocktail bars. They sure. go in hating them. They hate the expense. They hate what they see as pretension. They hate the fussiness of some. And it's like the bars, these are not bad bars. They're just not for you. So the worst thing you can get as a bar, if your goal is X, is that loads of people who do not share that goal come in because you're on a busy street or you're very obvious. So the whole speakeasy secret hidden inside a subway station thing is basically a way of pre-selecting people. You know, are you curious enough to go to a bar hidden in a in a subway station? Are you interested enough to make a reservation or reach out in some way or contact people on Instagram? Or do you just want to go to the place you read about in the newspaper or, you know, the giant with the giant neon sign outside? That's those are also good, because if you go into Margaritaville, guess what? You're going to find a lot of people who want, you know, extravagantly lurid drinks, and they're all very easygoing. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes it's just not about a, the the person completely. I mean, it's sometimes it's your mood. Like sometimes I, lo I love finding something secret and hidden. I'm, I love like, ah, this is the door. That's the, this is the code that I got off of Instagram that get, allows me entry. But sometimes I just can't be bothered with that faff. And then I'm walking up and down the street, trying to meet a friend for a drink. And I just, I just want to go into a bar that's just, I want a sign on my door. So, so, you know, right. it's not just, you know, people that you can classify them as one way or another. Different different bars for different times, too. And you know what time it is? It's 7 p.m. there in Paris. Do you want to get a drink? Uh, Yeah. All um, right, well, I'm going to pause this. Okay. Right, and, and we're back. I have enticed Ms. Collins into a drink. I have one myself to hand. Tell us of the martini you have constructed. I am having a very simple martini. I'm having a martini with um, Citadel Gin, Wally Pratt, a couple dashes of Fee's Orange Bitters, some lemon oil expressed over the top, and and just straightforward and simple. I'm also at the country house. I have a more limited bar out here, so um, so also working with what, what I've got. But uh, but this is actually I really I get very happy when I can drink local products as well. So I mean I'm a big fan of Citadel anyway. But uh, so yeah, it's my little French martini. Except have you have you had their cornichon release yet? No, I haven't, and I'm a little bit scared of it. I mean, okay. I know, I, I yeah, I haven't. Have you? I have. It's very good. Is it okay? Yeah, I had a drink with Alexander Gabriel only last week. Actually, he was passing through town. I have not seen him for quite some time, but yes, I'm quite a big fan of Alexandre and uh, and uh, his wife. I just actually sent her a little message because I have not seen her for a long time. So. Uh, yeah, we we might see more of her in New York than you uh, than you do. You Paris, probably so. do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've recommended a drink, the Gang of Four. Yes. Do you want to talk us through it? Yes, I do. It is an equal parts. This is from Joe of the Red House and Sister Midnight. Um, he has created this drink. It's um, well, like I just said, it's an equal parts, and like lots of people, I love an equal parts uh, drink because uh, it's just easy. And then also I don't have to convert things. You know, I'm always writing recipes for people, but they're coming in in ounces or or metric. And so just equal parts. How do you just, translate 50 mils? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, 
Anyway, equal parts mezcal, Saint Germain, Benedictine, and freshly squeezed lime juice. Um, I shake mine up and uh, strain it into a chilled cocktail coupe. It looks like you're drinking it on, on a rock. Is that what you're yes. doing? Yes. Yeah. And- I'm, I'm last wording it. Um, okay. It's very pleasant. We need more uses for Benedictine. I know. You know what? I was actually really glad when Joe sent that recipe over to me because, first of all, here's another thing we can talk about. I This is not the first time I've had to collect cocktail recipes for a book. I mean, this is the first book with my name on it, but I've also ghostwritten the update to another cocktail book and I had to collect recipes. And um, it's really hard to get people to send a recipe. It's And it's not a bartender's job to understand a writer's job or um, make drinks that, you know, that the home bartender can necessarily make. And they always want to share something that's really interesting. And, and, um, that's that's really hard for or just the average reader of these things to get their head around or be able to make it home. So I was just really thrilled when Joe sent this over, and I felt like not only is this just going to work, readers get it. It's equal parts. It's, there's no there's no crazy equipment. There's no weird techniques. Not weird. I mean, I find them interesting, but you know, unusual to many home bartenders. Um, they get all the ingredients, uh, and 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 it's interesting. And I can use that fucking Benedictine that's been sitting on my shelf forever. So. Um, there's just not that many cocktails that I drink with Benedictine. So anyway, that was a long way to say that's, that's the drink. And, um, no, that's it. That's all I have to say on that. That's it. The, ga- the gang of four named after the revolutionary leaders of China at one stage. Weren't they the ones who toppled Mao or something? Yes, or, I yeah. believe so. I believe so. I'm a bit hazy on the details. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But it's a very tasty beverage, and I got to use that heavily oxidized bottle of St. Germain that has been knocking around the Duff liquor cabinet for about... It's in a dark cabinet, and it is oxidized to the stage that it's like a dark brown. Somebody said to me the other day, what happened to St. Germain? What? Well, you, there's, I was kind of wondering the same thing too. But you, you still see them. I mean, they're still active. It's just, you, you don't, I don't see it in cocktail the cocktail bars that I go to as often anymore. I mean, at first, you know, for a hot second, it was, you know, bartender salt. And, um, and now you don't see it very much. Um, and the bars are the places where you could use it because in my house, it really will sit around for a while to the point where it gets really oxidized. It gets really dark, uh, because I don't use it that often, but in a bar, you know, you can turn that around a lot faster, but you were saying something I found interesting about the uh, when it's oxidized so i'll allow you to elaborate well, I think, on that i think it's tastier a lot of these things get a lot tastier i don't know if you've ever heard of Eamon rocky no so Eamon is you know x 11 madison park and nomad uh had his own amazing place for a while and really got into punch mm-hmm. right and i i remember knowing this he submitted a seminar about Punch to Tales of the Cocktail, where I used to be the educational director. And I saw it. And another guy, some guy I'd never heard of called Gareth, uh, submitted a seminar on Punch as well. And I'm like, well, I don't know if we're running to two seminars at Tales. So what I would always do in a situation like that would say, hey, why don't you talk together and see if you can both put it on jointly? And they did, and they became great friends. Uh, so much so that Eamon went on to start his own milk punch brand. Initially, it was called Rocky's Milk Punch. And then, because people are idiots and things are difficult, uh, he changed the name. It's now called Rocky's Botanical Liqueur. And it's the most amazing thing. The universal mixer. You just add a bit of this to any liquor, 
and maybe some soda or something if you like, and it's just fucking amazing. It's really, 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 really good. And last year, uh, we did a couple of, you know, going out, drinking, visiting accounts together, cocktails with Old Duff and Rockies in them. And on one of our last meetings, he gave me an old bottle of it from the very first production. It had been sitting in a warehouse for a year or two, and it had oxidized. Like any milk punch, the liquid is normally clear. But this stuff was, you know, a light brown. And I mm-hmm. took it home and I drank it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, was it good. Mm. This is what it must have felt like to have the first mm. sherry. Like, it was so good. Interesting. Ah. Well, maybe that'll become a, a a thing. People aging and oxidizing different things in their bars. Well, we've been doing it for a while. But going back to the thing that you said about St. Germain, the thing is, St. Germain is a liqueur and it's got the reputation of being a liqueur. It's amazing in a spritz. Just that yeah. and something fizzy, like, and that's the drink that they push. But I wonder, I, I have a personal theory that this uh, current lust for bitter drinks and Campari and Select and, and all of that uh, is driven to a degree by the perception that these, uh, you know, vermouths and aperitivos don't contain sugar because they taste bitter. Oh, yeah, which is a mis- mis- yeah. And Anybody yeah. looking to drop a few pounds before Christmas, uh, I, I regret to inform you that they could all pretty much be classified as liqueurs, should they so wish, meaning yeah. they contain at least 100 grams of sugar per liter. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, let's be honest, I, I it kind of, I find it a bit funny when people are always on the lookout for, for alcohol that's healthier alcohol liqueurs, whatever. I mean, unless you're sitting around drinking Bailey's, like they're all, it's all, it's all bad. It's all calories. It's all. So just drink what you want to drink. And, but I, I think that you're probably right. The, the equating this idea of bitter with them, um, but there's actually quite a lot of sweetness to it, you know, as well. I mean, it's bitter, but there's, I also, there's sweet elements to a lot of these bitters. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, let's get back to the book. Right? Okay. Talking about it. Let's get back to my initial question which is uh if you were to read the bbc or reuters or anp or the new york times uh it sounds like things are kind of roiling in france at the moment so can you take us through what it's like from you know pre-covid covid era up to now yeah i mean i think you know we were we had really hit a stride pre-covid and um you know, we were on maybe kind of a third generation of bars from the, you know, the real OGs on the scene to, you know, just like happened in New York where, you know, people left Pegu Club and started opening the next bars. You know, we were on our third, fourth, maybe generation of all these places spawning new places. Um, and then, you know, like everywhere, it really ground to a halt during COVID because we uh, we were all, uh, you know, all of France. We were in confinement and not allowed to go a certain, even a certain distance um, from our home. So, um so everything shut down. A few of the bars were very enterprising with bottled cocktails. Um, the the folks at Sister Midnight did that. Uh, a few of the bars really took the time. They had the they had the means to take the time to um, use that to really create new menus, do more research, uh, kind of just go inward, which was great. And I honestly don't know. I'm not a bar owner in France, uh, clearly, um, but I think that 
in France, there was also more opportunity um, just from the government as well to be able to keep keep the lights on in some some way, shape or form, more support for the bars. So I I suspect we had less closures than maybe certain places in the U.S. uh, because we did lose a few bars here and there, but so many of them stayed open. Um, And I think a lot of the closures subsequently came from the exodus of hospitality staff as opposed to, you know, COVID, the COVID closures. So, um, so yeah, so we obviously had the dead period where the bars were reflecting. And I think once we got back on the ground again, bars were, you know, kind of coming up with, we definitely saw a lot more conceptual bars at this point. So I think people were taking that time to, you know, and even if they were conceptual bars that weren't a new concept, like a vinyl bar, like Frequence or, um, you know, like the, the various kind of speakeasy style places. Um, so I think that we, that kind of quiet period really, um, injected a lot of, uh, um, more interesting things in, into the scene and a lot of enthusiasm. It made us kind of renewed our interest, kind of you take something away from somebody for a while. You want to, you, you realize how much you love it. So, so things are going pretty well in Paris now. I think, you know, when I first started writing about cocktails, it was impossible to find a decent cocktail bar. Now it's impossible to hit all the new bars that are opening. It's, it's, you know, I used to spend time writing about the good and the bad bars, but I don't even have time to write about the bad bars anymore. I might story something out, but the, the, there's there's they're everywhere so and um and also i think because of covid people were what it's happened is people decided they wanted to move out of the bars they didn't want to be working at night they wanted to be spending time with their family so that meant a lot of them were migrating to more to restaurants or you know less less bar environment so that meant that that means that cocktails are spreading um to other types of venues and uh that are more accessible to people who want to live a day life and you know not not work a night job so, I, I mean, I would imagine that's probably pretty similar to to New York, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of plugging along. Everything got quiet um, and then lost a few and lots more new ones. That's that pretty much sums it up for me. I mean, there was a huge exodus of people from the UK, very highly skilled uh, bartenders, to Amsterdam because of Brexit. Have you noticed any of that in Paris? I haven't. And I actually never really even thought about connections between um brexit and and um there's a language the, barrier really yeah you do need to speak french even in Paris, yeah. i feel yeah i mean there's there's people that work in bars and don't but uh i think that yeah it's it's definitely you if you want to do it effectively um you but that's not the to, case in amsterdam uh oh true yeah absolutely no i think if you want to do it effectively you have to speak french but i i also think um to be effective in a bar in Paris, you have to speak English. So I actually think you really have to be bilingual. You do. I think yeah. that, yeah, if you, I think if you want to make it big on the, you know, if you're doing the cocktail um, competition circuits, if you're doing that kind of thing and you're a bartender in Paris, you, you have to speak English. Um, I mean, not that I feel that it's right to oblige everybody to speak my native language, but um, I just think that professionally to advance, you have to. Well, if you want to run a restaurant in New York City, you better fucking speak Spanish because that's the language of all your line cooks. I mean, oh, you yeah. literally yeah. have to speak Spanish. There's no way you can run a restaurant without it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe soon we'll all have our little AI AI translators that are just kind of, you know, talking back and forth to each other. So we can all speak whatever. We'll have some sort of AI lingua franca. That's how that's how the that's how the machines start. Oh God, the machines, they're going to be taken over. Are we going to have machines that are going to be able to do the cocktail work for us? 
I saw a cartoon the other day and it was like two naked humans being whipped by robots. And one of them is saying to the other, can you believe this started with autocomplete? Our innate, our innate oh. laziness. But I mean, what one of whenever I'm feeling a little down or depressed, I think to myself of my friend, and I'm sure you know him too, Daniel Jones from Angostura. Yes, I sure do. Daniel is the greatest ambassador, the greatest male ambassador that Trinidad has ever had. Uh, its greatest female ambassadors are all the fucking beauty queens because every third woman has won Miss Universe. Uh, but Daniel is literally Trinidad in a bottle, the most ebullient and yes. second most charming person in a room I'm in. Um, but the th- he moved to Paris, as you know, and he one of the things is you have to learn French, yes? As a foreigner, yeah. you have to... Yeah, uh, I just... Whenever I'm feeling down, I like to think about Daniel in a French class somewhere. <laughs> it just... I mean, immediately. And, and I want to hear him speaking French. I had to study French. In fact, technically, I've got a university degree in French huh. and can't speak it because I never lived there. Yeah, but even living here, it takes a long time to... It, it took me a long time to feel comfortable, to feel like I could ex- ex- express myself in any way I wanted, explain, you know. But, um, yeah. Uh, but there are people who do live here and, and manage to navigate the city without ever learning the language, which is, to me, it feels like a little bit of a sad way to be. I do think that you open so many more doors when you can when you can talk to the locals. Um, well, kids, yeah. un- Uncle Philip's here to tell you, I am the first person in my family to speak another language. And it's Dutch, actually. I'm bilingual in Dutch. Uh, we've never had a conversation that I couldn't have in Dutch. And it teaches you to be better in your own language, to communicate, because it teaches you the, it gives you the gift of humility, because while learning it, you have to really, truly listen to people in a way that you don't do consciously in English. Yeah, well, and it's not just the humility from that. You also have to force yourself to feel uncomfortable. You know, I consider myself, I mean, I'm not really um, showcasing that very well right now. I feel like I'm not being as intellectually funny and witty as I normally am, but uh, but I feel like I can hold my own in English. And so, you know, I learned French, you know, I learned it in high school, but, you know, I was old by the time I moved here, not old, but, you know, I was 30. So, um that's an old age to have to throw yourself into situations and sound like an ass. Like, you know, you just, you're making mistakes. You're not expressing yourself well. I remember kind of throwing myself into this one French class and making this big statement about, yes, um, gay marriage should be, of course it should be legal and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I, after my big statement, the teacher patiently explained that they were talking about something entirely different, you know? So it's like, Traffic you lights. have to, basically basically so you know i mean i didn't feel bad i made my opinions known but um uh but you have to like it it teaches it humbles you in that sense too you have to be willing to run around and express yourself like a three-year-old so um but it's it's great if you're the boss and you have to learn a language it, it happened to me i wound up sort of managing a bar team coincidentally all women um And in an organization that was completely bilingual, it was, you know, everybody spoke English, but I was the only person and all my staff spoke Dutch to each other. So I learned Dutch, meaning I began fucking up so horrendously. 
And they were very patient, but it made me a better manager as well. I'm not really a fan of the concept of servant leadership. Sometimes you've got to be the boss. But uh, here's the story about fucking up. Kids, if you learn a language, embrace sucking and embrace fucking up. Here's the story. I used to have to tell people at a bar in Rotterdam that uh, they would order their food at the bar, but they would pick it up at the yellow bus, right? Because we had an American yellow school bus there, and that was the food counter. Now, English doesn't really have guttural sounds. You can pronounce any word in English, and it might sound a bit weird, but if you pronounce it, people will understand it, and it doesn't mean anything else. You can say straightforward or straightforward or straight forward. It, it kind of all the same. In some languages, the sound you make affects what the word is. So the Dutch word for yellow is geel, right? The Dutch word for horny is geel. Very similar. So I discovered after four to five years that I had been telling people to pick up their burger at the horny bus. And did you notice an increase in traffic to the bus during those years when you were directing people to the horny bus? I did notice a few confused people, but okay. then again, I'm a fairly, you know, and I induce confusement in a lot of people. But coming back to uh, France, can you take us through, uh, well, first of all, an overview for any of the uncultured barbarians, most of my listeners, in fact, who do not know Paris and its layouts, its arrondissement, mm -hmm. right? Can you uh, give us a bird's eye view of that and then sure. zoom in on a couple of them? Yeah, so the uh, arrondissement of Paris, those are, these are the little neighborhoods, and there's 20 of them that make up the city, and they are organized like a snail shell, and they, they, they go in a spiral. They start from the center of Paris with the first and the second and the third and the fourth, and they get progressively larger as they go out into finally until they hit the 20th. And each arrondissement, you know, they, they have their kind of distinct personalities, um, some of them kind of blend into others. Some of them are very hot spots for um cocktails. So you've got like the the 10th or the 11th, you know, super um young, uh trendy, um not as refined as maybe something like the the sixth, which is kind of old and staid, and you've got uh, you know the Sorbonne there. But um and and the nature, the 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 style of these arrondissement also kind of is reflected in the bars that you find there. So um yeah, everybody loves like everybody loves the the tenth or the eleventh for for bars, and it, and it's packed with bars of all stripes. You know, it's lots of young bars, lots of um, student bars, but also you know lots of really really good bars. Um, other places are pretty uh, desolate for bars. So I live in the fifteenth, which is very kind of residential and very nice and very large boulevards, but very few bars. So you have to really do your work to find a place to drink there. So um yeah, so they're 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 all kind of different. And you see something like the the 20th Belleville, which is a very working class neighborhood. It's very multicultural. Um these are the spots that are interesting for me um because they're places where you're not normally going to find uh many cocktail bars of the the type that that that, that we probably frequent mostly. Um but so the ones that are out there and that are really popular, like uh, Combat, um, are really worthwhile because they are 
they're bringing people across town to go to a pretty like remote part of Paris for most of us. You know, it's it's kind of a trek. And so it's really interesting to see these neighborhoods sort of shaken up in this way and and something new and something different. I mean, you know, there's two sides to that. I mean, some people also feel like some of these neighborhoods with these kind of bars and establishments are getting a little overly gentrified. I kind of feel like you can't stop progress and things change and things progress. And that's the nature of living in a cosmopolitan city like Paris. You know, things are going to move and spread and change and you're going to have people, you know, foreigners, uh, locals, expats, everything kind of in one relatively small geographic area. Uh, Paris is not really that large, even though I just said it's a big trek to get to the 20th, but it's really not that large. So I really kind of like those kind of areas for exploring because it's it, it just feels more worthwhile. Um uh, there's another bar I've, I've heard of recently that I'm dying to go to called Kiss Proof, which is not in the book because it I learned about it after it opened after the book was out. And so I'm just hearing talk of more little spots like that popping up in these in these different areas. And it, even in fact, when I first started writing about cocktails, um, there was nothing around Pigalle, right? And now you've got, you know, all the bars that are around Pigalle. So, um, so yeah. Um, it's, it, I mean, I, I, like I said, I guess some people don't necessarily want to see a lot of cocktail bars popping up in, in these spaces that that have different, uh, that I guess different types of establishments. But I think it's kind of cool. I just, I think it's, um, I don't want the entire city to look the same, but I like to see a little cross pollination between um, arrondissements. I guess. Well, it's it, you know, Paris is unusual in that regard. It's a beautiful city. Like New York is impressive and stimulating, but not beautiful. Paris is beautiful. Amsterdam's beautiful. London's beautiful. But Paris, among all of those, because the whole fucking city burned down and was rebuilt by Baron Osman in, yes. I don't know, do you know, when was that? 1800s? I, yeah, I don't know for sure now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let us know in the comments if anybody knows when yes. Paris last burned down. Uh, but that's why you've got, you literally can say, oh, it's in the 18th arrondissement. Whereas here, like there's arguments about, well, what's Murray Hill? Where's Carnegie Hill? Where does the Upper East Side stop? Like it's very fluid. And the street map of London looks like you dropped a pot of spaghetti, right? So you can't, but in Paris, you can, in many ways, your book, uh, Drink Like a Local in Paris, Cider Mill Press, available at all good booksellers, uh, is perfect because you have literally stratified arrondissement. Yeah. I mean, I tried it and that was actually, for me, I didn't know how I was going to approach it initially. And I did look to, there's a drink like a local um, New York. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's uh, Amanda Schuster who wrote that one. And so I kind of looked at that and I thought, okay, she's got this broken up sort of by neighborhood. So I, that's what I'm going to I'll gonna just copy do. that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll do exactly what that other person did. That's thanks what all the, good artists do, assist, right? Thanks for the assist, Amanda. Yeah. Um, but still, I didn't know how, it, it, it took a lot of kind of time and thinking, how will I express the personality of these neighborhoods and how, you know, and just actually it took a little bit of uh, analysis on my part like do the bars really reflect the personality and i really kind of found that they did you know and and um the personality of the, of the neighborhood and, and the residents of that neighborhood in many cases they did you could sort of see some generalizations you know kind of like well-heeled people of of the you know sixth arrondissement having these nice bars or um having uh student bars there as well because of the sorbonne um 
no bars in my neighborhood because it's primarily old people and families. Um, so yeah, I actually was really very happy with how this kind of finally played out, you know, looking at my big list of bars, big table, um, noting all the arrondissements and then kind of like finding in there the patterns and putting it into something that's coherent. And I hope really useful for the, for the reader. Um, because I do think people, when they pick up a book like this, they're not coming to Paris and going, let's see, I want, I, I want to go see what Forrest has to say about, you know, this particular bar. They're pretty much like, okay, I'm in this place. I'm, I'm in the fourth, I'm in the third, um, I'm in the second. And then, oh, okay. That's where the experimental cocktail club is. They don't, they shouldn't know the bars before they come. So they have to be grounded somehow and geographically is how I'm grounding them, which makes sense. And again, stole it from Amanda. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's been a few of these books. Um, actually, so what you're just saying about neighborhoods, as I said, it's very stratified in Paris. Your book is perfect for anybody going there, but especially in large cities, there's sometimes a, a weird disconnect that I experience in my neighborhood. I live on the Upper East Side. Um, contrary to what people think, it's not just wealthy people. It's actually a huge mix. Like single bars were born on the Upper East Side because there are insanely wealthy people here. Uh, but there's lots of working class people too, people who work in the hospitals and the schools and and all that sort of thing. But there's a lot of areas of the Upper East Side, like 10 block radiuses, where, you know, the bars are decidedly average. And this in mm -hmm. one of the cocktail capitals of the world, like a place where you would order a martini with trepidation and no idea, because there's this sort of thing like, oh, I'm in New York City. Everything's half an hour. You Generally, you can get everywhere in half an hour, on the subway at least. Um, so I don't go out where I live. I go downtown. I'm going downtown. And that becomes a weird thing in that the local restaurants and bars have no incentive to up their game. I, that's totally, that's so true. That's very, very much like Paris. I mean, it takes about 30, you can get anywhere in 30 minutes on the Metro. And, um, you know, when I moved to the 15th from, you know, I was living up by Pigalle, um, when I moved to the 15th, lots of people, especially the bar people said, oh my God, you're, you're moving to an area that's dead, devoid of bars. And I kind of thought, well, this area was devoid of bars when I moved here. So maybe bars will start appearing in the 15th. But that aside, I don't really care if personally, I mean, I'd love to have nice bars around me, but that's not the goal of where I'm living because I go to bars all over the city. I'll, I, no matter where I live, I'm still going to go all over the city, go to bars, but that's just me. Most people do not, you know, make a career out of trying to visit every cocktail bar in Paris. Those people, they just want to go to their restaurant next door to their little, you know, cafe around the corner. Um, I do think in Paris, uh, so much of the culture is cafe culture and that's pretty standardized. You get, you know, this kind of the same level of wine in most of them. You get the same beer, you know, you might get a Grolsch or you might get a Leff or something like this. And um, and that's, um, most Parisians are pretty much just, that's, they're um, acclimated to that. That's what they expect. That's what they get. And in fact, if they got something better, they might kind of be, oh, what is this fancy business here? Uh, this isn't my usual cafe life. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and I do think it's the same in Paris. I don't necessarily think that well, I, I, people aren't there. They're, 
or maybe they are catering to the, their neighborhood and their neighborhood doesn't care. But um, it does become the tyranny of low expectations. I'll say this. I opened door 74 in 2008 in Amsterdam. Everybody thought it was dumb, including my business partner and the staff. Shout out to Timo Jansa. But what they, did they think was dumb? Because you opened it with a concept to be really welcoming to people, right? I mean, you know. Well, the fact that the door was locked, you had to make a reservation, right. there was no sign, da, 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 but everything right down to the alcohol collection. And it was a gamble. All hospitality is a gamble, right? If you build it, they'll come. Amsterdam's a hotspot now, not just because of door 74, but it did kick a lot of things off. So... You know, in my neighborhood, it's very interesting. When I say neighborhoods, a 10-block radius, there's two, let, let's say that there's probably 30 bars or restaurants with bars, right? And there's two or three that you can go in and order a Manhattan, order a Martini, order a Negroni, or order something off their menu, and it will be good. It will be a 7 out of 10. At least, right? The, if you if they have a creative cocktail on the menu, it will come as described. Yeah. Which is great. A seven out of 10 is good. I mean, you know, I, I'm tired of all the hyperbole and everything can't be 10. So seven out of 10, I think is solid. No, exactly that. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that. And we have, but the interesting thing is we have some spectacular restaurants and their bars are not at that level. But that's been, I mean, that's, that. this is, that's historically been, it, we are only now seeing the restaurant um, prioritize the bar programs. And I, there's probably lots of reasons that you know more than I do, because there's probably financial reasons behind it and managerial reasons behind it. And you can't maybe give the bar as much free reign as you would if it was a freestanding bar on its own. I don't know. But, but I mean, I, I don't, I've never understood why there's such a disconnect. Continue. Sorry. I just had to sidetrack. No, I, on that. I, actually, I just wanted to jump in about half our listeners are based in the USA where, you know, you'll go into a dive bar in East Owlfuck, Arkansas, right? Where the bartender's arm is in a plaster cast and he's only got one eye and you'll ask for a martini and he will fucking do his best to make you a martini. It might mm -hmm. come in a mason jar, but he'll make it. And my, my, uh, my friends and God rest him. He's not with us anymore. Wayne Collins from the UK, my direct contemporary, um, he would bemoan this fact. He said, you go to a pub in England, they've got vodka, they've got lemons, they've got Worcester sauce, they've got Tabasco, you know, they've got tomato juice. But if you ask for Bloody Mary, they'll just tell you no. Yeah. Right? And this is by way of explaining to my American listeners that traditionally in Europe, right up to and including Michelin three-star restaurants, the bars would be decidedly average. Oh, so average. And what is funny, I mean, I, I I kind of chuckle when I do have American friends visiting and they are so surprised that you can't just rock up to one of these cafe, you know, cafe, uh, corner cafes that I was just talking about and get a martini. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of the question. Now, it, it's becoming more prevalent. And the funny thing is all of these little cafes, they always have, it always has written cocktails on, on their awnings and things. It's, it's very. It comes with a sign. <laughs> yeah, it does. Cocktails. I'm like, not really, but okay. Um, they should put on the yeah. cocktails. Only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool too. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sure they know what the word means, though. Um, Late but yeah, cocktails. It's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> true. You just cannot. 
um yeah you, you can't expect to, to well, get once it, even all the there was a place there. there was a place in rotterdam that got three michelin stars big deal big fucking deal because dutch people won't pay for money if you want to have the cheapest three michelin star meal in your life go to holland it will literally be almost half the price of a three-star michelin interesting in yeah dutch, okay dutch people are cheap um but i went in there and i was jazzed now this is back in the 2000s i wasn't gonna ask them for a martini that's a fucking dick move but i said hey can you bring me a glass full up and i did the thing with your hands like full up and i'm doing this in fluence and impressive dutch by the way full up with ice uh and just a big old pour of gin and they're like we got you brother <laughs> what i got was a wine glass with two tiny ah. sad ice cubes from the bottom of an ice bucket that had been set out three hours before and an ounce and a half or 50 mils if you prefer of Gordon's gin. Now, there's nothing wrong with Gordon's gin, but this place had just ascended to, I mean, how many three-star Michelins are there? A hundred? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, except maybe, yeah. Yeah. And that's that. That's a big, it, it's a big disconnect. And I always feel like, well, as you know, I know the inner workings of bars and restaurants, all the money is made at the bar. Yeah, but also, so sometimes I wonder, um, I all the money's made at the bar, but how many hoops do they really have to jump through? So I've been talking to people more recently here in Paris because I uh, I find the hotel bars, like I really love a good hotel bar, and I find the level of nice hotel bars I'm talking about, like, like the Palace Hotel Bars, mm -hmm. does not compare with London. And I don't understand why they're just, they, their game is not, I mean... I love all my Paris cocktail bars. No, not throwing shade at all you guys, but you know, I just don't think that the level of quality is not the same at the high end, you know, bars that, that you see in both, both places. But I really don't think they have to in Paris. I don't think most of the people are, I mean, I don't know about in London, but like, I just, I don't think they have to, to go that extra step. And I'm not talking about um, you know, getting real geeky with their cocktails. They they all have great service. The We're service about is spectacular. Specifically, hotel bars here. Yes, hotel bars. Yes, okay. I'm talking about. Yeah, like like like. Yeah, I'm talking about the four star hotel bars. Um, and uh, I I just the it's not there. And the, some of the people that I've talked to really agree, but also feel like it's because they don't have to. They don't have to. So, um, what what do you think is lacking? In a sense. Uh, I think or, or, or rather, lacking. not lacking, but what are they not doing? Give I think that a couple of examples. You don't need to name names. Yeah, I, well, I just think that the um, that it's not the service at all. But I think that the range of cocktails, range of spirits, the um, the techniques that they're using. I, you know, um, I, I also think for me, they are focusing on um, what's not important to focus on in a high end hotel bar. But what is important to focus on in a high-end hotel? So, for example, I went into a, a hotel bar and I ordered a martini to start with, and I specified to a gin. start with before a <laughs> bucket of whiskey because exactly when Forrest comes in, all <laughs> staff it. vacation is cancelled. That's right. Get Double ready. the security detail. We're Alert need a bigger the boat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to start. I with. know. I got my martini. Had that. 
but I specified the gin and I don't remember what gin I said, but, um, uh, and so then I wanted to try something off their menu. So I picked something off the menu and it had a specific gin and he said, okay. And he said, oh, would you like me to make that with Plymouth or whatever I'd asked for? And I said, no, you mean I'd your like martini you- gin. No, no, no. I'm talking about this cocktail number two was listed on the menu. It was a creation of theirs with a name checked gin in it. With XYZ gin. Yeah, exactly. And so he said, oh, should we make that with um, Plymouth? And my thought was, I don't want this is your creation that you've built around this particular gin. You must think Mm -hmm. that's the perfect gin for it. So I want it with what it's supposed to be with. But and so I kind of had to remind myself that's not a fault. That's actually a positive for them because they're in a high-end hotel. What they're showing me is that they recognized and remembered my preference. Uh, so so I think that it's probably a challenge as well um, doing these high-end hotel bars. But yeah, I just think that we've got a little um, room to maneuver. And I think that it's a shame because I've said before, I think high, high-end hotel bars, they're like designer sunglasses, right? Like most of the world will never get a taste of sp- spending a night at the Crayon, but they can get in there and they can afford a martini so they can ah, get a taste of the creole great medicine. so i think great, that um great. that they're letting themselves down with with the when they just allow themselves to skate by on all they need to you know they they probably i guess what i'm trying to say is that in a lot of these cases the amount more of effort or money they would invest in trying to put together a better cocktail program or make better cocktails or make more coherent menus doesn't equal the improvement and revenue, you know, people are still going to come anyway, but I just think that people could have a better image of the restaurants. And I did just call out the Creon, but I actually think they have a great bar program. Um, and that's, I think, one of the ones that's doing really well, but they're also doing well because they're looking at their London sister hotel bar, right? Like Scarf's is fantastic. Yes, so they've, it got, is. they've got this nice um, cross-pollination and, and inspiration and, um, you know, really good, like, you know, info coming from, from London. So I think that... Um, yeah, we could do better in Paris. And I don't even know why I was talking about that anymore. But there you go. That's my opinion. We're a drinker and there's, you know, there, there's no questions anymore. But this is a situation, uh, Forrest, where toxic male dick measuring can result in better bars. And I say that because I was there in London in 1995. Uh, if you wanted a great cocktail at the time, I would have taken you to TGI Fridays, where I work. I and, know, yeah. And you would have had a fucking delicious cocktail. Like we, we knew, by the way, that a lot of the cocktails were just fruity nonsense. But bartenders, we drank El Diablos, Uncle Vanya's. We made Sazeracs. I worked at one Fridays where we grew mint outside in 1993. Wow. And every now and then... We would recommend a mojito to somebody and and run outside or a julep. I made juleps with mint that I'd grown in 1993 in fucking Croydon. So, but I think that's also part of the uh, you know philosophy behind TGI Fridays: not grow mint, but like there's such a such a focus on um, customer experience. Don't let them sit at the table for more than uh, this amount of time. Like you, you really do have a playbook at TGI Fridays from what I understand. I think from what I've learned from, from you and other people I've talked to. And I think that, um, that does, I mean, it's surprising, but I think that people throw a lot of shade at TGI Fridays, but I think that the current cocktail world has a, the people that are doing something successfully have, uh, should pay some homage to learning tech process from places like that. You know the guy who invented Fridays is still alive. Really? 
Alan Stillman, God bless him. How old is he? 900 years old. But (laughs) (laughs) I I went into, so he only actually, after founding Fridays and inventing modern singles bars, he only went on to own it for like about 10 years. Then he sold out, traveled the world, got bored, came back, and he founded Smith & Walensky. And then he founded a whole bunch of other places. And I'd been living in New York for five or six years. And I'm like, I've heard of this place. I got to go in there. So I go in there. And it's lunchtime. There's an old Irish bartender, actually Irish. You know, he didn't just watch Far and Away once. And I order a martini and he's pouring it out. And as he's pouring it out, I say, hey, did you ever serve Alan Stillman? And without pausing, he's still pouring. It's very impressive. He goes, Mr. Stillman still comes in a couple of times a month for a drink. And I was like, oh, my God. And he kept pouring and leaned across. and He says, but his son, different story. Like, <laughs> the end of the story is the bartender was, of course, Union. And Union is the only way you cannot be fired in New York City. But what a lovely story. Anyway, back to me. If you had come to me in London and said, hey, let's have a great cocktail in 1993 or 4, I would have taken you to Fridays. Or I would have taken you to a hotel bar. And when I say hotel bar, I mean all of them. They were all dusty, luxurious, but unloved, if you know what I mean. The bartenders and the beverage director, there was no beverage director, were clearly low down on the prestige list. The drinks, you could order a Manhattan or a martini. You could order anything you like, but they were, let me be frank, not well made. They were not well made. And what happened was the cocktail revolution got going very first in the UK. And I'm going to date it, 1995, Oliver Payton opened the Atlantic Bar and Grill. And everyone's suddenly like, holy fuck, fresh juice is delicious and proper technique and small glasses and boom, 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 boom. And what happened was these old school bartenders got better. They were not always better. They learned, like Dale DeGroff is very open about it. He was actually hired by Jonathan Downey to be the instructor for the match bar group. So he would be going to England four times a year and he would come home by his own admission, uh, having learned more than he had taught. Because these young bartenders had nothing to lose. and They were iterating like on a daily basis. Like our one of the most recent podcasts is with Kevin Armstrong, who was, you know, a young bartender became the group bar director for Match Bar Group. And he was like, no, every first Tuesday of every month, every bartender and bar manager came together. We got a lecture. We got a written test on the previous month's topic. You know, this was like serious shit. So back to the dick measuring contest. What happened was this cocktail revolution got going in London, as you saw. Mm-hmm. And I now I might be getting it wrong here, but I think the first luxury hotel to close down and completely renovate, including putting in a cocktail bar as good as the other freestanding cocktail bars in London, was the Dorchester. Okay. I think even um, with the gorgeous group, a young Charlotte Voicey worked on that one. Um. I don't know what just happened there. Uh, And then all the other billionaire owners of hotels did the same. The Savoy shut down. 
and then reopened with a superstar uh, F&B director, Daniel Bernrather, who hired uh, a young man called Eric Lawrence to head the bar, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of toxic male dick measuring, it, that's what's actually driving the rise of uh, cocktail bars and hotels in Asia. Because very often, the people who own Rosewoods and Four Seasons and stuff out there because they're franchised are billionaires. Yeah. They, can, they, they have fleets of private jets. They can buy anything they like. But when they're all around the dinner table measuring their dicks, it's like, well, we're at number six in world's 50 best bars. So, And, and that has actually been a positive and for instance, I know the the Ritz, the legendary Ritz of Paris, closed down, renovated, reopened. It's gorgeous. I did a thing Absolutely. there for Beluga Vodka just before the world ended in 2020. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I'm interviewing young Colin Field uh-huh. on, on Monday or Tuesday, his first public outing. Oh, I'm very excited to listen to that. I haven't seen Colin for a long time. Well, the Creon Creon also renovated in 2017, 2019, and it was a very extensive renovation. And it was an incredible change in their bar. Like their bar used to be just kind of like a small room in the back and not anything of note. Um, It's a world of difference. So... Anyway, yeah. Well, just... to bring it back, like you, you, you're, you're a chair for fifty best, but now there's fifty best restaurants, fifty best bars, and fifty best hotels. I was going to say that, yeah. So these hotels, yes, there's a, there's a list for that as well. I think so. Fifty best bars was actually around since two thousand and two, and nobody yes. gave much of a shit about it until about ten years ago. It was one more list, you know. Yeah, and then. For whatever reason, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it, it became a thing. And here's, I, I'm putting this out there, so I don't have an opinion on it. I want to ask you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you are, let's say you're a hotel with a bar and a restaurant, and getting on some kind of a list or winning an award will turbocharge your business. We all know that. What's the cheapest and most efficient list to get on because it used to be bars it is no longer it I is no longer interesting restaurants restaurants is if you think bars are a commitment getting on the restaurant list it's a whole thing the hotel list is brand new so we don't really know yet yeah this year was the first year that we had the hotels and i think that that is um it's a whole different category i mean when we're playing at that level i do think <clears throat> We're, I think with the the 50 best bars, <laughs> it leaves room for a wider range of a type of venue, right? Like I I can let people know I vote because that's not a secret as a chair, but um, you know, I voted from everything from dive bars to really high-end bars. But I, I think that, that that's gonna be more challenging with the hotel list. So um uh I oh yeah. Um, I think I, I would still feel like it would be bars. I, I, I don't know. Um, because you might be right because here's the thing, right? As a, your, your chair, I used to be a chair myself. Um, but as a judge, you are supposed to go to these bars, pay your own money and judge them. Yes. Right. And you nominate bars you have visited in the last year. 
Yes. Now, it was in the last 18 months, year and a half. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I was out last night and I had an expensive cocktail. It was a boatyard gin saffron martini at the amazing Zuzu's. It was $28 plus tax and tip. However, it was seven ounces. And that's why I had a hangover this morning. Uh, it, I can swing 28 bucks. Yeah. Right. And I can go out to dinner to 11 Madison Park and I can drop $1,300 for dinner for two. Um, wine pairing, tip, tax, sure, the whole thing once a year, right? Yeah. Now, hotels, some hotels are $1,000 a night. Yes, they are. How many of those are you able to pay for yourself and per- be yeah. an objective judge? Like, is the entire panel... The fucking one percent. I, I, I'm just putting this out there. I don't have an answer. Uh, I I don't know because I even amongst the bar chairs, we are all very secretive about because it's we are supposed to keep this to ourselves. How many people are on our panel? Who's on our panel? Um, so I don't know how many people are on the South of Africa panel. Even though I talk to the chair there all the time, um, so I don't I don't know how they decided to compose the um the hotels what i do know is contrary to the hotels and the restaurants voters are can vote for things hotels that they visit on trips on press trips oh interesting yes interesting i mean it doesn't work any other way for any of my uh listeners one of the things that came up recently in an online debate that kind of surprised me was that some people and i'm not just talking about 50 best i'm talking about all these awards right we're not just spanking that particular monkey um that people would vote for a bar that they hadn't actually been to but that they had been to a pop-up of and that's not a good thing to do. That's you are not, you can't do that. Fucking bonkers. Are you out of your mind? Yeah. It's 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 not within the rules to vote for a bar that you have not stepped foot into and visited in the previous year and a half. And you know, that's something that we do discuss amongst ourselves that, you know, that we kind of solidify our resolve that we make sure. That all of our panels, I, mean, I can only speak for the for the bar chairs, but you know, all of our members of our panels are fully aware of this. Now, I can't control what somebody does anonymously. I don't see anybody else's votes. Um, uh, but there's also, you know, what makes me you know, no list is perfect, right? I mean, uh, so but what I like is there are there are there are audits, there are um the 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 votes are audited at the end and they do certain things to sort of check to make sure that people are you know we as chairs kind of spot check like with our people to keep an eye on them on social media have they actually been to that place have they not but they actually have professional auditors um william reed that come in and look at timestamps on when people are voting or two people voting in the same house or two people do you know um so i they i think there's an easier way to do it and funnily enough, a white guy came up with that idea, uh, which was audit every judge twice a year. 
I'd how would you audit this. every how how would you audit everyone? What it means is oh, if you vote for a place twice a year, you'll be asked to produce a receipt, a photo of a receipt. And that uh, solves two problems. It solves the problem of were you there? And it also solves the problem, did you pay for your drink? Mm-mm. Because yeah. there is a there is a very different experience. There's no way to say this without sounding like Philip Duff. If I go into a bar, I'm going to have a very different experience even than my wife. Right? I will very often, like last night I went into this amazing bar and the bar, a, a bartender came up and hugged me and quite frankly, I didn't know him. I, or remember. Yeah. He hugged me and he said, Philip, what can I get you? I'm like, oh, mate, I just want a beer and a shot. I'm waiting for my friends. And he brought over a silver platter filled with crushed ice and a bottle of Miller High Life and one of those little carafes and a frozen martini glass. And he said, this is Japanese whiskey with a bit of plum and it's on us. Right? Yeah. Every now and then, it's good to be Philip Duff, right? But if you're a, a a judge, a voter, and as you know, and, and certainly as I know, um, nobody should know who they are, but you can make some pretty informed guesses. You've got to judge based on paying your own money and actually fucking going there. So if you knew of your, whatever, five choices you have to submit, that at random intervals in the year, but at least two intervals, you would have to produce an actual receipt. I think that would make it less imperfect. What do you think? Uh, I think that's very interesting. And I'm surprised that that is not a conversation that has come up uh, because I think that sounds like a really, well, what do I think? Would that be effective? I mean, I think it sounds, in theory, yes, I think it would be effective. Um Boris yes, is thinking, it, by the way. I am thinking. Sorry, I forgot. I'm like, you can see me, but they can't. I'm just staring off. Um, yeah, I think it Boris would. is naked, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yes, As am I. I, mean, I think it would be effective. Um, but I guess it it seems like this isn't like that's not the the most out of the box suggestion ever. So I can only imagine people maybe have thought of it and decided it's not. A, I'm not saying just because somebody decided it wouldn't work, it doesn't mean it won't. But yeah, I mean, to me, obviously, like I would not want to be, you know, if if my if it was risk of not voting, not you know, being pulled from the panel. If it sh- turns out that you're not paying for your drinks and making visits to these bars, I would be, you know, very careful. I'm already careful, so I'm actually kind of like, um. I mean, there there are people who would crawl over broken glass covered in piss to be able to sort of subtly hint that they are 50 best voters. Yes, absolutely. Um, like one and... time, my favorite story, uh, Ian Griffiths from, you know, uh, Mr. Lion, Super Lion, White Lion, All the Lions, all that kind of thing. He told me at the Spirited Awards, the Tales of the Cocktail Spirit Awards, he was in the toilets and uh, there were two guys peeing next to one another. And one of them 
just to be clear for everybody who doesn't have a penis listening, it's not nor we don't normally chat there. This is we're there to do a job. That's it. There's no conversation. It is a purely engineering feat. But this guy's chatting. This guy says, "Oh, are you from So So Bar?" And the guy's like, "Yeah." And the other guy's like, "We vote. I, I voted for you." Ooh, yeah. Uh, big no, no. Now the question is, did you tell the um, chair of the region? I don't know. Well, I, Ian wouldn't have known who that was. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I I happen to know the region, but yeah, this is a few years ago. But no, there there are people who, like, they will. I mean, there are anomalies with lists. Like one time, I think it's been enough years. Clover Club was uh, nominated for a Best New Bar Award, but it hadn't opened by the time the nomination yes. period closed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. Now, well, well-meaning, of course. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's strange. I've seen the lists and awards go from like, oh, like being almost a joke to being things that people are deadly serious about. Yeah, well, I do think that, I, I mean, I think the lists are very important to to bars to bring people in. And, you know, we talk about the problems, but I do think that um, that it's, and again, I'm not just talking about 50 best. I am talking about tails. I'm talking about 50. I'm talking about, you know, all these other oh, things. Oh, top it, 500. Exactly, know. top 500, yeah. Um, uh, it's raised <laughs> visibility in general which is good for us consumers. It's making the bars work harder. So, you know, I say this, you kind of, you, you've got to get involved. <laughs> and from various perspectives, I wonder how beneficial that is to the bar, but it's been really good for me. Uh, well, uh, really good for the regular consumer. It's great for me. I love, I love what I do, but, um, uh, but, you know, for your average consumer, they get more interesting bar experiences. I mean, you know, it's, it's, hopefully globally a good thing and raises the visibility of bars and cocktails in general, you know, the old, all boats rise with the tide, but, um, uh, you know, which I, I don't know. Um, yeah, but back to that absolutely big no, no. I, I, if, if I hear about somebody on my panel, uh, mentioning to other people that they are a voter and it, and it has gotten back to me, I have heard people, tell me about this so-and-so that they were sitting with at this dinner table and they kept telling me that I thought, okay, that, that, that's noted for next time I'm compiling the panel. And um, yeah, which, you know, but at the same time, I understand people's uh, impulse to do it because other than, you know, trying to add your opinion to, to, to the list anonymously, you know, people, people, we all like to talk about our accomplishments and, and how valuable we are in our, in our community. So I do understand the impulse. Well, it's, it's political. And there's a saying, nobody should be a politician who wants to be. I fully agree with that. Yeah. You know, nobody should be a voter who wants to be because it's unpaid work. And you don't get acknowledged. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's an interesting one. Well, let me ask you a question. You've, ri- you've written a guide, Drink Like a Local in Paris, available from Cider Mill Press and all good booksellers, um, that would help people to discover bars in Paris. Yes. Right? Bars they might not know, areas they might not go to. Maybe they're visiting Paris. Maybe they're visiting from somewhere else in France or Europe or from abroad. 
right? However, one thing that has been uh, painfully evident in the last few decades, uh, and particularly post-COVID, is that many people, how can I say this, have not had the proper instruction in how to behave in a bar. So, what are the things you would tell people about behaving in a bar of any kind, not just a fancy cocktail bar, but the kinds, all the bars that you wrote about in your book um, in Paris? And is there anything different in Parisian bar etiquette compared to New York or London or Sydney or Bangkok? Well, I mean, I think in Paris, anytime you're going into a shop or, or, or a bar or a venue, you know, you you greet the person. You know, you, you bonjour. You you say you know, and that might not be the case. Bonjour is the, the French US. word for hello for my yes. American listeners. Yeah, and if you don't mm-hmm. start a conversation with that, if you just go right into your request, um, it's it's considered rude. So you know, you want to bonjour, acknowledge the person first, and. Beyond that, I also think this is just pretty standard everywhere. Um, even though earlier in this episode I said the customer's the hero, also remember that person on the other side of the bar is a, is a person, and you want to treat them with respect, and you're going to get much better service. Um, and uh, don't expect things to maybe be as fast, or you know, if you've got a lot of U.S. listeners, don't expect things to be as friendly. And um, I remember many years ago now, I hadn't been back to North America for a while, and I went to visit a friend in Canada, and I said to her, I said, I think this waiter is totally trying to pick me up. She's like, no, he's not. I said, no, no, he is. Have you noticed how much he's talking to me and how friendly he is? She said, you've just forgotten what really friendly North American service is like. And I was like, oh, God, you're probably right. I don't think he's trying to pick me up at all. But um, so, you know, don't Did expect- you sleep with him? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Did you sleep with the waiter? Um. Maybe. No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. Um, <laughs> no. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think don't expect overly effusive uh, service. And um, really, I think the rest is, is, is pretty standard. I mean, um, that you'd find anywhere, you know, don't, don't be obnoxious. Don't bug the, don't bug the people next to you. Don't, you know, uh, I mean, you know, don't hassle the other guests. I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like other than being really polite and recognizing that you're not going to get that kind of over overly enthusiastic hovering service, um, it's not much different from any other big city. I don't know. I mean, you've been drinking in Paris. Do you think there's something I'm overlooking there? No, not at all. Not at all. I think the key uh, aspect of, shall we say, drinking internationally, right, or even just outside your hometown is knowing you are not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. Right? Like there's a bar owner in California called Rick Dobbs. um, Very nice guy, very funny guy. And he wrote a Facebook post once that really uh, hit home. And he says, do you want to know what it's like to be a consumer? Go to another city, go to a hot bar, and just walk in cold. Don't reach out to your friends. Don't get introductions. Just go in there, sit down, and and you will know what it feels like maybe for people to walk into your bar. Because yeah. that's the flip side of this incestuous, globally interconnected world. If you are going to Bangkok, there are people you can reach out to who will make introductions and you will res- you will be received there 
maybe more effusively than if you were at Little Red Door or the Savoy or, uh, you know, the Chelsea Hotel in New York City, right? And yeah. that's kind of like, it, it's as if your your bubble has extended to Bangkok or wherever it might be. But it's very beneficial to get outside your bubble because customers are not there. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think that's also where some of the talent of selecting, well, I can't speak to how the other other lists are made, but the talent in selecting a panel. So, you know, um, your panel of voters. Uh, I try to make sure there's a really good mix of people who are um, good customers, but not good customers who travel enough but not incredibly well-known in the industry so that they're going to walk in and be recognized. So I think that that's another way where you can sort of try to maintain some integrity in, in, in the, well, in your own panels, but, um, and, you know, hopefully that trickles up to, to the list overall, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's kind of a, what are you going to do about that? Like, you know, I I mean, the Michelin guide has lost money every year for a century. I am not surprised. And I've never seen an advertisement. Well, no, I have seen advertisements for Michelin tires, but it is they clearly see it as part of their ad budget. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what it's there for. So yeah. Um, yeah. Will we see maybe somebody stepping up to subsidize bars? Well, I've you mean you know, kind of bar like reviews paying, like like paying independent, professional, anonymous reviewers who will go to a bar three times who cannot be identified on pain of death, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I've always wondered that. Like if you could find some adjacent, some bar adjacent product that, um, I, and I don't know what that would be, but yeah, absolutely. I've always thought that that, that would be an interesting um, uh, interesting uh, way to, to do that. But I don't know what that it would be, be really. might be Amazon. Amazon sells alcohol everywhere in the world except the USA. Hmm. Why not Amazon? Because it can't be any product that is sold in a bar because, you know, the fix would be in. It can't be like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, Diageo's funding this guy. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like they have this thing like, oh, Distill Ventures, our venture capital thing, is totally independent. I'm like, really? Because all the employee paychecks actually come from the Azure. So, you know. But yeah, it, it would be maybe that. Maybe. But what but, would be the benefit to Amazon to... Because they to... sell booze. You go to yeah, bars, you'd, you you know, you go to bars, it's all liquor-based. Yeah, and then you come home and you want to order that liquor from Amazon? Well, they sell beer and... Uh, or, yeah, wine, no, whatever, yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm just putting it out there. Jeff, yeah. if you're listening, call me. Yeah. yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm just kind of like mildly brainstorming. I'm like, what about Uber? Although I don't think their profit margins are very high on Uber. Because, um, you know, you need to take, you should probably not be driving to bars. So, Well, um, actually, Uber's a very uh, prescient suggestion. Because the or- original idea for the savages that listen to this of the Michelin Guide was that Michelin sold car tires. And then they came up with a list of restaurants that you would drive to, like yeah, ones exactly. that were literally worth a detour. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And that was their meta thing. The whole thing about Uber is like, well, 
if you're going to go to bars, you're Ubering home. That's actually genius, Forrest. That's very clever. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. Well, thank you. Unfortunately, Uber's been losing money for its entire Yeah, I know. I, mean, I, say, I, don't, I think they another can billion it, but... a year won't yeah. make any difference. Uber, Uber, yeah, I like that. The the Uber stars. Yeah. And Uber stars, although it does remind you of the Nazis a little bit, um, <laughs> would be a thing. Yeah. Could be. Cocktail bars, Uber Alice. Mm. Oh. Maybe. We do it all on the Philip Duff show. Indeed. Tell me about a bar you haven't been to that you're eager to visit. Well, I did mention this one earlier, um, Kiss Proof, that Kiss I'm Proof. very eager to visit. Not just actually... in France, though, huh? Oh, not just in France. Oh, gosh. Well, I haven't two. been to um, Double Double Chicken, please. It's amazing. I That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Um, and uh, so I hear really good things about that. Love to go. Uh, where else would I like to go? Um, I mean, there's so many places. I mean, fortunately, I get to travel a lot of places, but that's probably really high on my list at the moment. And um, I don't know. I'm leaving it at that because sure, I could dig through my memory, but um, but no, I've had the good fortune to travel a lot lately. So, um, well, not lately, but the past many, many years. So. So I'm narrowing that list down to, you know, of bars that I, I want to go to that I haven't been to. You know, the nice thing is, though, to return to our discussion about neighborhood bars and whatnot. Uh, in France, well, in Paris, you've seen it get to a stage where there are many bars that will make you a decent six or seven out of ten cocktail. Yep. Right. And I I saw that happen in London. I was literally watching it happen on a day-to-day -day basis. I saw it happen in Amsterdam. And it was already the case in New York, right? They started from a high bar, but now you are seeing better and better and better bars in, in you know, more outlying areas like, you know, yeah. the wilds of Bushwick and the Bronx and, you know, Greenpoint and New Jersey and stuff like that. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about that earlier when we we're talking, we're, I mean, massive growth in sort of secondary cities, you know, Paris is, has the highest concentration of really you know, quality cocktail bars, but you know, you've got bars in Bordeaux, you've got Lyon has a really fun um, cocktail scene, lots of cool stuff there. And um, now that's another bar that I need to get to. And I was trying to get down there this year. Um, Bistro, of course, now the name is escaping me, but it's Remy Savage's mm -hmm. um a uh, project that he's got going down there. So that's another one that I really need to get to too soon because I really do like to think of myself as an advocate, not for just Paris, but for France. And I think that that's another thing I think about when sometimes bars reach out to me and say, how can we get on this list? And part of my role I see is to get out to these other cities and put them on my Instagram stories and put them up here and put them on my, my site. So people become aware of them um, so, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm going to solve the problem, but I, I feel, I feel a personal responsibility to try to get more visibility, not just to Paris, but to these other, other cities that are, you know, working hard in France, turning out some good drinks. Yeah. Do you know Rachel Harrison? No, I don't think so. So Rachel owns Rachel Harrison Communications. It's a terrible idea to name your business after yourself. I say that as the owner of Old Duff Geneva. Uh, but she is an absolute superstar, old family friend of ours, uh, a queen bee of 
public relations for bars and restaurants and hotels and booze in New York City. And I had a long podcast with her the other day. And I said, look, what can, you know, a lot of bars will come to you and they will say, well, I want to be on a list. I want an award. Like, what do I do? Where do I sign? How much do I pay you? And she's, I, I said, what's your number one bit of advice? And she's like, make sure you've got something. Be good at this and this and this and this. Right? Yeah. You, you, like, you don't need to be good at all of it. She gave the example of one of her clients. I know who it is. Um, where the cocktails were amazing, but the food was not at that level. And she would say to writers and journalists, hey, go in there, don't eat the food. Um, have the cocktails, you know? Yeah. She says, "You've and, and be different. You've got to have something to differentiate yourself. And that thing, you, you should be doing it better than anyone around, right? Uh, before you commit. To a PR yeah. agency, because a PR agency, it could be eight grand a month. That's US it, dollars, yeah. baby. You know, so yeah. and, and they need six months to make any kind of an impact at all. So that's For 50 sure. grand. Yeah, but and their job is knowing how to get your good product in front of eyeballs and get the right people to notice it. Their job is not to make your product better or make it good if it's not good. So um, yeah, but I mean that that, that is it's not so applicable anymore, but you know, I remember when I started blogging and people would be, how can I get to be a well-known blogger? I'm like, just do the fucking work. Just work really hard. Like my goal was never to be well-known. My goal was to put this information in a way that I could really easily share it with friends visiting from the U S and all my cocktail people. You know, I'm not my cocktail, not the bigger cocktail community, but my friends who are foodies and, and, like good drinks. So it was never a question of like, how do I manipulate the SEO? What's my SEO strategy? And how do I, it, it just, just do the work. It is like publicity can turbocharge things, but you know, you can't gild a lily. You can't polish a turd, you know, yeah. it's, yeah. You, you can take something that's kind of, it, it's good. And you can catapult it, I think, but you can't go from, you know, zero to hero overnight. No, yeah. well, I think that's that's totally true. But, you know, fortunately, there's a lot of good bars out there. So um... right. there's one more question I want to ask you. Um, OK. And in the spirit of this podcast, I know you're at your uh, your secondary location. Tell me about your liquor closet and I'll pick something for you to drink. Oh, okay. Um, well, I've got all the basics, as you know, I've got, I, I, I have all the basics. I've got makings of, you know, I like things that are kind of these equal parts. So I've got the makings for paper plane down there. So um, uh, I've got vodka, gin, rum, cognac, Calvados. I don't have a lot in the way of juice at the moment. Like I've got a few lemons and limes down there. Let's talk about um, cognac. Okay. Why don't you grab a drinking cognac, as okay. to say something, you know, an everyday thing that you can talk okay. to us about. And I will, I think I have some Armagnac here, a really interesting okay. one. All right, we'll take it, we'll take a moment. So I have plundered the Duff Liquor Cabinet for Ortolan Armagnac XO Ba Armagnac. And I have a rum. You mentioned rum, and that just set me going. Uh, what have you got? 
I have got a, a pretty basic Camus cognac, um, XO as well. Uh, I usually have the cognac out here at the house because I use it for mixing sidecars and such. Usually when we're doing digestive sippers, we're doing a lot of Calvados because our house is very close to Normandy and lots of Calvados production around us. So that's more of my like like range of sippers. But yeah, this is just a nice, simple cognac Camus. What is it, VS or? XO. Oh, nice. No, Camus yeah. is fucking delicious. Yeah. Do you know do you know the Irish link to Camus? No. No. So they were the ones who originally uh founded Slain Irish whiskey. Oh years really? ago. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how the connection came about. And then, you know, they made it, then they stopped. The connection lapsed, and Brown Foreman swooped in and bought the brand. And the Camus people, if I'm getting this right, they founded Lambay Island Irish Whiskey. That's an island I could see from the beach where I grew up. Really? Yeah, yeah. there's some kind of Irish collection. I am drinking this Ortolan Armagnac, which was given to... uh, It was given to my wife to give to her boss, and we're just drinking it now. Um, But... The ortolan is a illegal dish in most places. It's you're you're likely the- you're likely poaching a baby sparrow in cognac and eating it while it's alive. And you're supposed to put a black little cloth on your head as you eat it to shield you from the judgmental view of God. Exactly. Yes. It was in yes. Succession series four. Yes. Yeah. I can't remember. We were just talking about that because. Was it we were talking can you, can about? Can you actually see the baby? Oh, yeah. Oh, you can. Yeah. Look at the baby sparrows here. Oh, yeah. I, think, I mean, I it's think, kind of like calling a fucking kosher wine, you know, gas chamber. This is bad. Yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, <laughs> this is bad. But yeah. however, lots of body, broodiness. I mean, You see cognac differently to everybody else in the world. And one of the strangest things is that cognac cultivated a luxury image everywhere else, an image it lacks in France. Uh, One of my friends was the global ambassador for Remy Martin for a long time, and he told me if he brought home a bottle of Remy Martin XO for his father, he'd literally be slapped in the face. But if he bought a bottle of Johnny Walker Red Label, his father would hug him. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It is. I mean, I find that so... um, I'm so lucky to live in France where there is this masterful distillation. um, And it's so strange that it's so underappreciated by... The people who live here now, you know, if you live in cognac, I think that there's more appreciation for it. But uh, it, things are very regional to these drinks, right? Like you're you're going to be drinking uh, Armagnac down in the southwest. You're going to be drinking cognac in the cognac region. You're going to be drinking Calvados in Normandy. Um, but it's just so underappreciated. I mean, you know, it's it's well, it's what the Le Sandy Cap built their their whole bar on, kind of the idea where grandpa's spirits go gangster, right? It's like you know, so many generations didn't um, want to drink mom, dad, and grandpa's old spirits. They wanted something. But new you want to drink great granddad spirits. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So it's like anything, right? It's all cyclical. So coming back full circle, but still, um, it just, yeah, it doesn't have the same same appreciation. Um, it's it's weird if you run down the categories, right? As to are they as beloved in the country where they were born as export? Um, I think vodka would be 50-50 because Russians fucking love vodka, incidentally. True, didn't yeah. know. But it's massive in exports. It's massive abroad. Gin? Until 10 years ago, I would have said it was more export, but the English have really reconnected with gin. Yeah, yeah, true. Rum in total is domestic. But premium rum is export. The local people tend to drink. I'll include cachaça in there. Vodka gin rum tequila. I mean, Mexicans drink more brandy than tequila. Yeah. And they don't drink as much mezcal as you'd think. Uh, bourbon. Bourbon is still domestic. Largely. I would say so, yeah. Largely. Scotch export. Is, did you know Scotch whiskey is the number one product by value that the UK exports. Interesting. Including fighter jets and submarines and everything else. They make more money from Scotch whiskey. Wow. And the number one spirit in Scotland is vodka. Well, the I don't know for this year the stats, but generally almost every year, the number one spirit in France for you know per, per Scotch person is whiskey, whiskey, baby. Exactly. Scotch yeah. whiskey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scotch it's yeah, whiskey. you're not you're not getting much bourbon, you're not getting much American whiskey here at all. But um yeah, and, and which always surprises me because I don't ever see that many French people sitting around drinking whiskey. Oh, they're at home drinking bottles. I think they must be, yeah. I mean, it's so humbling. Like being Irish is generally great, but when you go to a whiskey festival and it's full of Germans and French people and Dutch people, and they're all better at being Irish than I am, it's like, oh. It's like you going to a TGI Fridays in Prague, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but the other thing I brought along, we had a kind of a cocktail party for uh, parents of our kid recently. And everybody knows we're in the drinks business. So these people brought along a Bam Bambara rum from the Turks and Caicos Islands. Oh, interesting. Right? Eight years old. I have no idea if there is even a distillery on the Turks and Caicos. It looks nice. It is. The is Armagnac it, uh... was 43% alcohol. This is 37.5%. And you know what that means. Is it, a, um, I don't know what it means. Is it a sugar cane? Rather, is it a, um, like an agricole style? No, it means they want to sell it in Europe. Uh-huh. Because okay. spirits in Europe can be as low as 37.5% alcohol. They uh -huh. have, rum has to be at least 40% alcohol for the USA. Interesting. We're coming for you, Bambara. So let's have a live tasting of Bambara here on the Philip Dill Show. Great nose. It's a little bit of something like vinyl, but there's lots of funk and... No, this is rubbish. This is really like really, yeah. Oh. It's not okay. eight years old. If it's eight years old, it was terrible going in. Ugh. Um, again, but let's let hey, like I said, there's no bad bars. 
I don't know the price they're charging for this. Like, do you know um, Turconnell single malt Irish whiskey? You ever see that? No, I don't think so. So it came out in the early, well, uh, late 1990s. Um, the Coolie Distillery in Ireland was shuttered, reopened, bought, rejuvenated, and they brought in experts. And they, they're like, we're going to make Irish single malt. We're going to make Irish single pot still, which nobody was doing. It's all blends back then. And they brought out a minimum age, three years old, uh, Turconnell single malt. And it wasn't very good objectively, but it was also priced about the same price as a blend. So compared to a blend, it was great. And that's mm. what I drank in college because I went to college in the town where the distillery was. Oh, very yeah. interesting bit of trivia. So it's, I, 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 I should walk that back a little bit. There are no flaws in this rum. My expectations at seeing eight years old were heightened. Height, yeah. It's like eight years old, but you were locked in a basement. No sunshine, just sitting down there just, in a tiny just, box. Yeah, yeah, no, no joy. Yeah. It sparked no joy. So uh to get back to your book, it's out yes. now, yes. It can be yeah, purchased it's out. and it can be purchased, yes. Have you thought about doing an audiobook? I no, I haven't. Um, but now I'm thinking about it. Uh, no, they're huge. They're off the fucking charts. Yeah, and I, I I like audiobooks. I listen to them from time to time. So um, I just wonder, like, I always don't because the book includes recipes as well as bar descriptions. The bar descriptions are they they would lend themselves to audio, but the recipes maybe not. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if any of these are done in audiobook format. And I have a strong feeling if they were, I would not be involved in it because, you know, the publishing house pulls all the strings there. But it would be fun to read it, to narrate it, if it were. No, I, I bring this up because um, I recently had our mutual friend, I think, at least, uh, Robert Simonson on the podcast. And yes. he has just published the Encyclopedia of Cocktails. I know. I saw that. I put I put it on my little stories for suggested suggestions for gifts to people for cocktail lovers for this holiday season. So it I'm is excited. a brilliant book. It marries drink making, cocktails with the prominent features, the prominent people, and all that. And I asked him to do an audiobook. So yeah, I did. It was my first audiobook. And oh, the publisher cool. asked him to do an audiobook. And Robert was born to narrate audiobooks. He has that deep, yeah. rich, dark brown Midwestern voice. He's great. But he fought his publisher on it. He's like, listen, I've written 10 books. This is a literal encyclopedia. Do you want me to read <laughs> an encyclopedia? Yeah. And they're like, yep. yep. So there is an audiobook of the Encyclopedia of Cocktails by Robert Simonson, available at all your good booksellers. Well, good to know. Good to know. And yeah, well, now that you've asked me that, I probably will, will reach back out to the publisher to ask if if that's something that's ever in the works. So, no, but why not? It, it's it's now a thing. It's a way to get yeah. a little bit of extra money. But yeah. audio audiobooks are so big now. Like they're kind of stealth. Like I uh I actually knew Adam Curry who invented podcasts. Mm -hmm. mm. He literally invented podcasts. And I remember podcasts being a thing. And then they went away like yeah. leggings. 
right? <laughs> and then they came back just like leggings through two things. One, technology. They were integrated into iPhones. Yeah. And two, I began, I don't know, eight years ago, I began hearing a podcast. And I'm like, podcast? And I was in Japan taping a podcast with a couple of really clued in American dudes. It was about shochu. And before we started, I'm like, you guys know your stuff, right? You're you're in the podcast world. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, how did it come back? And they named it, it wasn't called Taken. It was a it was a true crime podcast about like a false conviction. Yes, um, I did. I think I listened to that like one. Like um, Symbol or Taken or Broken or Murdered or so. Anyway, anyway, it was a true crime podcast. They say that rejuvenated podcasts. A podcast brought people back because women began learning how to identify their predators. Interesting. Or how to conceal murdering their predators. I'm always terrified when I find my wife listening to a true crime podcast. But but that that was it. And it came back because of that. And I think audiobooks are really just alternative podcasts at this stage. Yeah. Well, I also think, honestly, I think because I used to listen to a lot of podcasts because, I mean, obviously we all just multitask all the time. We can't just fucking walk down the sidewalk. It's like, <laughs> um, that's a real interesting fit. I know. I'm, I'm watching Philip <laughs> make a very interesting face after taking a sip of that. Um, but, you know, we can't just walk down the sidewalk. We're going to be listening. We've got to be learning things. We're going to do podcasts, podcasts. Um, but the proliferation of podcasts, and there's kind of a lot of crap out there with podcasts right now. So I have really pared down what I listen to, but I think that there is a little bit more of a filter with audiobooks to be getting quality stuff in your ears besides music while you're kind of walking or doing other things, because there is that generally that filter of, okay, has this book been published? Now with self-publishing, we're also getting a lot of, I'm not against self-publishing, but that it just leaves the door open for more crap to be put out there and and now thanks to all kinds of platforms like you know canva and things we can make things look real professional regardless of how well researched they are or well thought out or well put together but i do think there's a tiny bit more of a barrier on the audiobooks and um so sometimes i just feel like it's um a little more maybe an assurance of quality but i definitely think yeah those those kind of spin off, spun off of the um the podcast i'm still trying to think about this true crime one because it was really big um, but yeah, audiobook. I'll let you know what if I hear anything back from the public. No, I think it, it, imagine how amazing it would be to walk around Paris in the arrondissement listening to you talk about it in yeah. your voice. This would be an amazing thing. And all I want is 10% of the IPO when you float your audiobook corporation. Uh, no problem, no problem. Um, I had people reach out to me recently. They do um, audio. They publish. It's a platform that publishes audio tours, uh, tour guides. You know, you download it from. I can't. I can't remember. I would say them, but I can't remember the name. And so I've had a couple of meetings with them because they're really trying to encourage me to create a walking guide in Paris, which would obviously be something around drinks. Uh, The only reason I haven't is because you can't just walk people past bars and go, "Look, there's dirty dick. Look." There's, you know, classique. Um, so I've been spending more time doing research into sort of some of the historical drinking venues. And By the a way, lot of these cereal. 
cereal. Thank you. I was I, I was actually just talking. I was Google. I was trying to find it exactly what it was. Cereal, um, the true crime. Well, I know people uh, who actually do cocktail walking tours in New York City and uh, uh, New Orleans. Yeah, and they're amazing. Like, did you ever do one in New Orleans? Um, the last time I went in New Orleans, it was like one of the first times I went there. I was probably 20 and it was a real crappy tour and it was more, yeah, it was kind of a bar crawl. So I wouldn't call it like a real cocktail tour. Um, so no, I've actually never done like an organized cocktail tour. Like I've done the gen bus in the UK, but like this one would be more, it, it's not, it, yeah. I mean, it pulls in history. It pulls in, but no, I mean the best people, um, obviously i go to new orleans every year for i don't know 15 years or more um and my wife god bless her is american she has no culture so she always wants to learn and she's always after you know let's let's learn more so one time we stayed an extra day in new orleans after tales of the cocktail and she booked us on the cocktail walking tour this is six Mm -hmm. or seven years ago oh my god it was amazing I thought, because I went to New Orleans and I knew every cocktail bartender there and lots of the dive bars. I thought I was the dude. Oh, my God. I mean, the guide was amazing. I think his name's Joe. And he'd been doing it for years. Interesting. He would take you in a bar. He knew everything. He'd walk you along to the bar and tell you all the history of that. And you'd have a drink, and but you would also see things you'd never see. So we went into Arnaud's. You know Arnaud's? In, yep. So Arnaud was a French immigrant, and he came to America. And the, uh, you know, Antoine Carême School of Cooking, the classic sauces, this was sorcery back then. This was tastier food than anybody in the world had had outside China. And nobody went to China back then. So he was a god. You know, he caught, he had captured fire from the heavens. And he started off with a tiny little restaurant. He wound up owning the entire block. And if you go into our nose, you sit in the front room, the tourist room, which is also extremely nice, by the way. And there's a bar that they set up about 30 years ago called the French 75 Bar, which is also mm-hmm. very pleasant, right? There are private dining rooms upstairs at our nose that you can never visit. Each dining room is the ownership of a carnival crew with a K. You may only dine in that dining room if you are a member of that crew. Interesting. Now, downstairs, the French 75 might fit 50 people and the big dining room and the overflow might fit 100. But if you add in the private dining rooms upstairs, the entire place, if everybody sat down at once, would house 900 people. It's That's a lot. wild. And when you go on the walking cocktail tour of New Orleans, you can see those private dining rooms. It's amazing. Oh, well, yeah. I, will, I will keep that in mind for next time I'm there. I haven't been for a while, so I'd like to get back. I don't want to do walking tours. I mean, I, I don't mind going on them, but I would not want to be the person guiding those walking tours because it does not seem fun having to walk a run, bunch of people around through bars. 
So my but if you narrated it, that's exactly and so they this could platform, stop and you're like, just, go just, in and buy a martini. Yeah, you know. Exactly. Stop here, have a drink, get this. That's what you know. That's what Hemingway drank, and go sit at his table when you're over at the Croiserie de Lila, etc. That I can get on board with. So, but I will, I will check out. I will go on the walking tour when I, next time I'm in New Orleans. Beautiful. So, drink like a local in Paris from Cider Mill Press, available at all good booksellers. Um, obviously, everybody who goes to Paris is allowed to call you up on your private phone number and take you out for absolutely, a drink. absolutely. I, we put it in the, in the credits on the book, so That's don't it. hesitate. Phone, yeah, phone number, everything. Yeah. Uh, Forrest, how can people find you otherwise online? People can pretty much find me everywhere. As 52 Martinis. I'm 52, Mar- and that's 52 Martinis on Instagram. My site is 52martinis.com. Uh, you can find all of my other activities through the site. The podcast is called Paris Cocktail Talk. Uh, the iOS app is called Paris Cocktails. Uh, but yeah, 52 Martinis, you'll find me. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Forrest Collins. Thank you very much. 